Live. Live. Live from... This is the Just End the Suffering Podcast. For the win. Got it! He broke his head. Follow me. Follow me to freedom. Here's your host, Mike Phillips. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the latest episode of the Just End the Suffering Podcast, featuring New York sports talk and long-suffering fan. I'm your host, Mike Phillips. we got a good show for you this week. We're going to be on the last dance kick for the next couple of weeks. We're going to be talking Knicks Bulls today because episode five and six last night, especially episode six, spent a lot of time on the Nick Bull rivalry of the 1990s. Some great games there. I'm actually going to be joined by a pair of people to discuss that. Ian Sachs and I are going to be doing a joint interview with Steven Asses, who worked for the Knicks in the nine, early 90s. For some of the games that we've seen, he was there around when the Charles Smith game happened, when Nixon Bowles played that iconic 1993 Eastern Conference Finals, the year after they played the 94 Eastern Conference Semifinals when Jordan was retired. We'll talk about some memories of Jordan and the Knicks with Steven Asses today. I'm also going to do a full recap of the episodes 5 and 6 of The Last Dance with the guys from the Fantasy Sports po- Fantasy World podcast, Alan Pines, Zach Cohn-Douglas, we will break it all down, talk about the big highlights from the episodes, all that good stuff coming up there. Pop culture this week, we are going to close the book on season three of Westworld. I'll be talking with Sandra, our pop culture correspondent. We will recap the season finale, season as a whole, reflect on it, look ahead to season four. A little surprise in there as well, something else I'm going to discuss. We'll save that at the end of the show, but we'll get it all started this week's opening tip, where we talk about the latest from MLB, that they do have some optimism about the return of the season. That's coming up right after this. First and foremost is that we seem to be moving in a positive direction as mm-hmm. a country. Maybe it's slowly, hopefully it's surely, but going in the right direction is the first step. And once we get sort of the logistical things handled, once we can figure out testing, and once we can figure out and ensure that our hospitals aren't going to be overrun, and once we get a better sense, hopefully, of what this disease actually is, then we can focus on sports, and then sports will feel comfortable coming back. And that's always been the rub here. Sports doesn't want to come back too quickly because it doesn't want to feel trivial, because it doesn't want to feel like it's interrupting the reality that we're living on a daily basis. But if that reality is getting better, if the country is reopening, all of a sudden, sports seems to fit in really nicely with that. And I think we saw that with the draft, or at least got a taste of it with the NFL draft this weekend. All right, we are back. This week's opening tip. You just heard ESPN's Jeff Passan breaking down some optimism that baseball is having about having a season start soon. And it feels like the more you listen to the sports league these days, especially baseball, that the more optimistic they're becoming about the chance of having an actual season. Now, I've floated around for this podcast a little while. I've... My theory has been basically July 4th. That's been the day I feel like that's going to make the most sense because you still need time to, for players to ramp up. Still need, you need a second spring training period. You got to let this thing continue to climb a little bit in this country. I feel like July 4th seems to be the realistic date, and that's easy the timetable that the leagues are pursuing right now. The NBA is still working on stuff, essentially opening facilities for individual workouts in, in the coming days. Baseball right now is thinking about, like, the plans we've heard now are more geared towards 
We're going to start getting people back in around June, hopefully late June, latest July 2nd, we're going to start the baseball season. And things have certainly changed. Those Florida-Arizona models with the hubs, they seem to be out of style right now. A lot of the veteran players were against it. Clayton Kershaw and Mike Trout, the two most vocal about it, basically saying, hey, we want no part of being away from our families for four or five months at a time to play the season. It seems like right now, the model the league is settling on is sort of this idea of the teams can play in their parks without fans, just broadcast the games, and hopefully maybe by like October, you can have a handful in and basically reduce your capacity. The theory here would be, you know, we start the season in July, play about 100 games, you know, run the regular season through mid-October, run the playoffs through Thanksgiving, and you get the full 2020 season in the books. That's the plan at the moment. Right now, that could change, but there are a couple of proposals floating out, leaning more towards the idea of we're going to play with our teams in the home stadiums and keep them, like, you know, away from these hubs. One came out last week, courtesy of USA Today's Bob Nightingale, where basically the model here was, you know what, like, we're going to align baseball geographically for a year and have three 10-team divisions where the East teams are in one division, the Central teams are in one division, the West are in one division. The only difference is that basically, like, you swap out the Braves, the Pirates, to make the geography work. But this way cuts down on travel. Teams would play exclusively in those divisions for the regular season. So, like, the Mets would play in a 10-team division with the Yankees, Red Sox, Orioles, Blue Jays, Rays, uh, Pirates, as I just mentioned, Phillies, Marlins, and Nationals. Like, that would be all the games they play this season. You would have expanded playoffs in this format. That's an option. Another proposal's come out over the weekend, courtesy of Tampa Bay Times, uh, Mark Tomkin. Basically said the league is also thinking about, you know, keeping the regular division intact, playing only an 80-game schedule. And the idea here is, you know, you cut down your travel, you limit the amount of exposure people have to the outside world, and I don't see why this couldn't work as long as the testing is available. That's the key to everything. If the testing is there, that's the key to starting all these leagues and unlocking the formula here. Right now, basically most of these places are, like, under, like, orders where, like, if you stay at home, you only leave up for essential activities or if you're an essential worker, go to work. If that definition gets expanded to say, you know, okay, baseball players, you can go from your home to the stadium, you social distance at the stadium, you play, you go home again, or if you're on the road, you go to the hotel, go to the park, go back to the hotel. You can put that procedure in there. That, in theory, would work because then you're limiting your exposures to the outside world. If you're flying charter planes, you're not exposing them to random passengers. You can space out the plane and limit who travels on a plane. Stuff like that could work. There are a couple of concerns, however, and right now the biggest hurdle potentially could be, not even just the health, is the financials. Because right now, you're looking at at least starting the season. And probably playing the whole year, but at least starting it without any fans in the stands. You will not have a scenario this year where you have full capacity sand uh, games. That's going to result in a loss of revenue for the league. And the league basically has said, like, you know what, like, players have to accept lower salaries. Because the revenue we want to pay them with is certainly not there. We talked about this back in April when they made that deal to get advanced $170 million in salary, but get paid on a prorated basis for the rest of the season. The, that assumption was based on the idea that fans would be in the stands. We've gotten to the point now where they're 
there's almost certainly going to be no fans in the stands, at least not for a couple of months. That's his money from the ticket sales, the food, the merchandise, the parking. That's not going to be available to these teams. So the TV contract will help. Make sure they can negotiate extra contract deals with some networks that are going to need content because, you know, your primetime show is going to be delayed in the fall. They're not going to shoot on time, most likely. Stuff like that. You're looking at scenarios where, like, baseball can make a little up, but not enough to pay the full freight of a player's salary. And the players have to realize that, you know what, this is not a time to be arguing with owners over money. There are 30 million people in this country who are unemployed. Many more have been taking less money at companies to ensure that some of their fellow workers can stay employed. MLB and the umpires, the reason to negotiate a deal, where the umpires are going to take 35% less salaries to work the season. If the players have it set in their mind, they are not going to give an inch on money. You're not getting a baseball season. Because there are teams where the gate drives everything. Like the Kansas City Royals, for instance, like they don't have a massive TV contract. They rely on that gate money. And without the gates, if they're opening the stadiums up for the fans, like you still have to pay people to operate the stadium. You still have to pay the scoreboard operators. You have to pay all your game day employees who are there on the operation side. Like, and you're doing that and you're paying your players. Like so they seem to lose $100,000 a week. That's not a sustainable model for them to open it up. So there has to be a compromise agreed here. And the league has to realize, league knows this. The players have to realize that, you know what, like this is not a time for us to be fighting over money when so much is going wrong in this country and baseball can help bring some normalcy back. Politicians have started discussing, you know what, like it'll be nice to get baseball going again. Even Dr. Fauci, you know, he's puts conflicting statements out there every now and then about like, oh, we can do it. Oh, we can't do it. Fauci never really wants to give you a firm answer or anything because he doesn't know for sure. But he said at times, baseball can work. If you're going to say, you know what, we're at a healthy place that we can play the games without fans, but the players say, no, 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 we don't do it unless we get whatever the money we digitally agreed to, that's a problem. And you're going to lose a lot of people like that because the last thing somebody who's out of work and doesn't know when their job's going to get back, the last thing they want to hear is millionaires and billionaires fighting over dollars. That's a very poor look in a time like this. Hopefully cooler heads will prevail and ensure that if this health situation worked out, the financial side takes care of itself. But if they don't, they risk a lot. And that's a big problem. And hopefully smarter people than us say, guys, sit down, figure it out. You cannot withhold the baseball season over money. If it's health, the people, the public will get it. They will say, okay, we understand. It's not safe. We cannot take the testing away. We don't have a testing capability. That's a different problem. But if testing is there and you're not playing because you don't get paid exactly what you agreed to originally in a normal society, that's an awful look. I hope the league is smarter than that. I hope the players certainly are smarter than that. We will see what happens with that as we move along. But up next, we will talk a little Knicks Bowls with Ian Sachs and Steven Astis right after this. Ewing out to set a pick. Here's Starks, changed his mind. Plenty of time on 
the shot clock down at 10. Ewing for Smith. Smith. Swip, Smith. Stop. Smith. Stopped again by Pippen. What a play by Scotty Pippen. Final seconds. Jordan for Armstrong. And the Bulls have defeated the Knicks. The Chicago Bulls with a couple of spectacular plays. All right, we are back here. The Knicks fans might want to cover your ears after that. That was a painful reminder, courtesy of NBC's Marv Albert. The Charles Smith Memorial's Jelbeningo calls on WFAN when Charles Smith gets blocked four times at the end of Game 5 of the 93 Eastern Conference Finals to the Knicks and the Bulls. Knicks end up losing that series. It's one of the focuses of last night's set episodes of The Last Dance. We're going to talk about it today with a pair of people. First up, somebody we talked to last week, Ian Sachs, is back on the line. Ian, how are you? Uh, hey, Mike, thanks so much for having me again. It was so much fun last week breaking down the last dance and reliving the Jordan era with the Bulls. And always love coming on the podcast, so happy to be back for round two. Yeah, today we're going to do something a little different. We're not recapping the episode ourselves. We are going to have a conversation with somebody you know well, Stephen Asses, who worked for the Knicks in the 90s, and he was there in the early 90s for that era of the Knicks-Bulls rivalry, which is probably the most heated it was the entire time of that Jordan was there. Yeah, I mean, you know, you think you think back to the Bulls' first run at, at the three-peat, and you think, okay, you know, they coasted through the Eastern Conference, they get to the finals, they had some tough matchups in the finals, but the Eastern Conference was certainly no cakewalk. You go to that, you know, you, you, we, we talked about it last week with 91 with how they had to get over the Pistons then 92 Mike Wilbon saying you know he thinks that was possibly the best Jordan Bulls team ever and then 93 you have the matchup with the Knicks the Knicks were the higher seed there they had home court in that Eastern Conference Finals and they take games one and two at Madison Square Garden and then it's time for Jordan to become Jordan once again once the series shifts back to Chicago for three and four and then some fortunate turn of events for the Bulls there in the final minutes of game five to catapult them to a 3-2 lead and then they were able to close it out in six but certainly we could be looking at a completely different history had maybe one of those layups fallen had the Knicks been the one to take that 3-2 lead then let's say the Bulls win game six and then it's a second straight year where the Bulls and the Knicks are going to game seven and we all know as sports fans that a game seven anything can happen yeah one of the rarities that Bulls run to is they they very rarely dealt with game seven with the Jordan era they had I think two they had the one against the Pistons the if Miss Scotty Pippen migraine game that they lost, and they had the one against the Knicks in the 92 Eastern Conference semifinals, which they did not cover on the dock, but the Bulls obviously won that as they went on to win the championship. But before we bring Steve in, let me get your quick take. How do you like last night's episodes? Well, I, you know, I could be saying this every single week, these five weeks. This series is amazing, and taking back, to, taking us back to that time period and looking into it, and really fascinating the sneaker rivalry for Michael Jordan that he really wanted to go to Adidas. And his mother said, no, you know what? Go take a look at Nike. Listen to what they have to say. 
and then after Nike offers his old brand new own shoe line, and his father says, you know, that's really the best deal. You'd be foolish not to take it. I think we could be talking about Jordan and Adidas, and where Adidas is the king, and then Nike, Nike might have just stayed on fringes in uh, in making just running shoes and not be the global phenomenon that it is today. And it's all largely tied to, to Michael Jordan. And um, then, uh, of course, the, the dream team aspect of the the episode five that we saw where, you know, you look back at that team and that was, without a doubt, the best collection of basketball players ever. We, we have so many NBA stars to be on the Olympic team since then. But when you look at those are really – 11 of the greatest players, not just of that time period, but of all time. You have Jordan, you have Pippen, you have Barkley, you have Magic, you have Larry. The list goes on and on of who was on that team and just how amazing it was that they were all able to gel, put their egos aside. Chuck Daly didn't have to call a single timeout the entire Olympics. Not one timeout. They just coasted through everybody and brought the the U.S. to dominance, and the the country hasn't looked back since then. All right, Ian, that definitely is interesting. I'll be diving more into the episode in just a bit with our good buddies Alan Austin and Zach Cohen Douglas. But you, our guest, is on the line. Would you like to introduce him, Ian? Sure. Uh, we're joined today by Stephen Astis, who worked with the New York Knicks. In the early 90s, uh, I believe 1990 through 1994, so right around this time that we're talking about with the Bulls and that great rivalry and series with the the Knicks. And, you know, we touched on 92 a little bit, but especially the one that focused uh, in last night's series, 93, the Eastern Conference Finals. Steve, thanks so much for joining us. Great to talk to you guys today. All right, so Steve, you were there, yeah, you know, in the trenches. We we touched a little bit about it off the air, but take us inside Madison Square Garden, and especially when Michael Jordan came to town, what was that atmosphere like, and how was it different from, say, a typical Knicks game in that time? Well, one thing that is definitely becoming clear watching the last dance and sort of reiterating for anyone that wasn't around and watching at that time is just how much of a rock star Michael Jordan was throughout his entire career. Coming out of college, he was very popular because he was so exciting because everyone that watched him play could tell that he was different. You know, we heard Isaiah Thomas, some of the controversial comments he had made about how there are 10 or 11 players as athletic as Michael Jordan today, whereas Michael Jordan was by himself. Now, that may be a bit of an exaggeration, but I think the sentiment of what Isaiah was going for there is everyone could feel that there was something different about Michael Jordan. So every time he came into town, it was a huge event because of his marketability, especially where it affected me in particular, because working for the Knicks, I was the conduit 
to Michael Jordan. And so Tim Hallam, who was the PR director for the Bulls, and I would work very closely to make sure, because there was always at least a couple Make-A-Wish program kids that their wish was to meet Michael Jordan. Of course, wouldn't yours be? And so we would negotiate all of that and work out all the logistics. And so then, again, getting back to last dance, that was the thing that you really see coming through is just how much of Jordan's time was demanded of him off the court. And it's really quite an amazing thing to look at from this sort of inside view to get a feeling of, you know, going out and playing basketball is fun and everyone that does it enjoys doing so. Try and imagine performing at the level that they performed with all the other things that were going on around them from ticket requests to charitable and philanthropic endeavors to, you know, a sick child that you had to meet for the first time and make him feel special because you wanted to. He was really very giving of his time, which was so incredible, considering how acutely I knew how much of his time was being taken up with all these different things. It just seems so easy to say, you know what, I don't have it in me today, guys. Can you just can you just not do it? But that belies his philosophy, which we've all heard several times over, which this day, this moment right now, when I'm walking from the hotel to the bus, when I'm walking from the bus to the arena, whatever the case may be, that might be the only time this person has ever laid eyes on me or will lever, lay, ever lay eyes on me. So I have to be looking my best and behaving my best because that is who I am. Yeah, I definitely noticed that during the documentary last night where they talked about like how like the, the demand around him was so huge and like they had that montage where they had all the celebrities who wanted to see him play. And we know that MSG is usually a mecca for like all these celebrities come out and sit on the courtside seat, sit like baseline to see the stars. But I can only imagine how much that demand must have hyped up for whenever Jordan was in town. So two things related to that, Mike, which are really interesting uh, and no one would know because I'm sort of the only person, well, in one case, there are like six or seven of us that know. So the MSG network was an early regional sports network. Not every city had one, right? Um, but MSG did for many, many years. So we were a little bit ahead of the curve in trying to come up with innovative ideas and things to do. And so one of the things that the network uh, coordinated through me was um, we played the Knicks, I think this was 90, the spring or just the winter of 91. We were playing the Bulls in the garden and it was Valentine's Day. And so we arranged a photo shoot or a little video shoot for Jordan to have a Valentine's Day greeting. And they got every one of the most beautiful uh, assistant, executive assistants and secretaries and just people that worked in the network. Actually, someone I dated briefly who was a very attractive woman worked for the network. And they put them all in sexy outfits and had them sort of, uh, what would you call it, just sort of hanging off of Michael on a bed of roses in the, the team's hotel where he sat there and delivered a Valentine's greeting which is just kind of crazy when you think about it. Wow. I did not know that. And, and I think that plays to the different time that it was compared to today. And we talked so much about the, the difference in terms of the game, about how 
inside the lines, it was so much more physical and with the hand checking and that, you know, today people discuss what Jordan would score if, if he was playing in today's time. But that really goes back to the different era culturally where it was such a, a, a different time period. Yeah, uh, and we, we, I, I've been watching some of the coverage of The Last Dance, and I heard, I believe, Jalen Rose was the one making the point that you could very easily, when removing the hand-checking, you could very easily uh, give Jordan another basket per, per quarter and then send him to the line one more time per quarter, whether it's a one-on-one or for two free throws. And then that's not even factoring in the fact that they weren't taking, yeah, we saw him make six three-pointers in the first half against the Blazers. Uh, but first of all, that was such an anomaly. He even shrugged. That's why it's such a famous shrug of the shoulders is to say it, it was as much Clyde Justice can't guard me as it was even I can't believe that I did this because he just didn't shoot three-pointers that much. But if you account for him going for even one or two more three-pointers per game, there's another two or three points uh, depending on how you distribute it, he could easily have scored another 10 or 15 points a game without really changing much about his game. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. I mean, we talked about, like, we saw in the documentary last night, I mean, Patrick Ewing basically said in that series, it wasn't a foul unless you drew blood in the in those games. And, like, he, that whole mentality, I mean, this, it just felt like the rivalry. Like, the beginning that we had the Pistons and the Bulls, now we heard several people say last night, you know, like, now it's the Knicks and the Bulls. And I feel like, was there like a mentality mm-hmm. in the organization where it's like, you know what, like we want to be the next big thing. We can take the Bulls down and become the NBA superpower. Well, and the interesting thing about that, Mike, is if, if you look closely, you can see a very direct line from the Pistons Jordan rules to Riley's tactics for how to stop Jordan. And the only difference there was the animosity. Now, yeah, you saw Ewing last night say we hated them and they hated us. But I can tell you firsthand, they were very friendly. Oakley is still to this day one of Jordan's very best friends. Patrick Ewing is one of Jordan's very best friends. I can tell you they were hanging out, okay? They were spending time together. I was there. I saw it. So that animosity didn't exist like it did with the Pistons. But what the Knicks were able to do is that same mentality of that brutish sort of the one thing that separates you, Michael Jordan, from the rest of us is as soon as you leave your feet, we are all helpless to stop you. And so the Pistons would keep him from leaving his feet, but actually they didn't keep him from leaving his feet. They knocked him down while he was in the air, which is why it was so brutal and so violent and created such animosity and vitriol. Whereas the Knicks would literally keep you from leaving the, your feet uh, and, and getting into the air. But the amazing thing, if you notice about what Jordan did when he, when he scored, I think, 54 in game three, uh, is he just decided, you know what, I'm not going to get beat up going into the lane. And the highlights sort of, illustrated it but if you watch the actual game footage you would see even more he killed them with jump shots mid-range games he's like i'm not even going to bother going in because ewing's there and oakley's there and you know all these different players are there to stop me uh so i'm just gonna stay i'm gonna stay out here on the periphery and he torched them for 54 that way and that was 
part of what Jordan's game was in that he could beat you in so many different ways and driving to the basket, hitting the mid-range. And really, he wasn't even that much of a a three-point threat, which Steve, as you mentioned, made that 92 finals. So remarkable his hot shooting from outside. But let's dive more deeply into that 1993 Eastern Conference Finals. The Knicks have home court, so, you know, you could look at it either way of of who should be favored entering that series. And then New York takes the first two games at Madison Square Garden. And what's the mindset of the organization going back to Chicago up to zero? I mean, you know, even even if you back up before that, they demolished the Nets with Kenny Anderson and Derek Coleman. Derek Coleman, one of the most talented power forwards in the history of the NBA. And they just dismantled that team. And then they just steamrolled the Pacers. You know, everyone was walking around thinking, this is it. This is the year. And then to go up one nothing, everyone was very calm. And, you know, of course, everyone was excited. But thinking, okay, this is Michael Jordan. This is the Bulls. you gotta, got to keep your foot on the pedal and step on their throat to borrow a couple of phrases and cliches. Going up to two nothing, all of a sudden, you know, it it really could not have been positioned better for this team and the marathon that they had just gone through, and now to be as close as they were to vanquishing their bitter rival, and then for you know, I remember when it was happening, and I knew that it was going to be a story. But when it came out that Jordan went down to AC, I, I remember thinking right then, guys, that uh, this is not good. This is the last thing that the Knicks need is an even angrier Michael Jordan that now has a chip on his shoulder that is legitimate because we all know that he is famous for creating chips where they don't even exist. Hell, he cursed out a guy at his Hall of Fame speech. Was that 20 years after he finished his career? incredible so his ability to fabricate a slice wasn't even necessary he had a legitimate slice they were doubting him they were saying that he was tired so you know it i won't say it seemed like a fait complete, but we really did not see what was going to happen from there then no one really expected it because then like i said he, he turned on that mid-range game and said oh you think you figured out how to beat me let me show you just how great I am. I don't normally do this because I can get to the rim whenever I need to, and I can do these huge circus, you know, swirly, hoop-to-hoop you know, hoop sort of lay-in finger rolls and make everyone ooh and ah. Yeah, I don't need to do that. I can be just as great sitting out here at 15 feet with my four-inch height advantage over Stark. And, I mean, you know, Rolando Blackman, forget about it. He wasn't going to help. And so... You know, it was tough. It was a tough feeling because you really felt helpless. And think about how much more success the Knicks and Barkley and the Utah Jazz, all of those people all lumped into the same grouping of unfortunately existed during the Jordan era. Yeah, that's true. I mean, this team was basically so high after Starks dunks over Jordan game two. They're up 2 nothing, And then 
kind of it goes completely the other way. But they, they lose both Chicago. They come back from Game Five, and we have the sequence at the end of the game when Charles Smith gets blocked four times trying to put the Knicks up. So like. What's the mood after that sequence there when the Bulls steal the win when Smith gets blocked four times? And many Nick fans will tell you this day that he was fouled at least one of those attempts. Yeah, and, you know, watching it, it's, it's painful. It's really painful to watch because all the feelings are coming right back to me. Um, just the, the feeling of dejection, the feeling of defeatism, the because the, Charles Smith is a great guy, really is a truly special person. Um, as are so many of those guys treated me so well, and I'll be forever grateful, even though you know there's a locker room in these tough places. And I'll be forever grateful to Jeff Van Gundy for coming to my aid and my defense as the small little white guy from Westchester, New York, uh, when they really zeroed in on me and started making me the butt of their jokes, but uh. You know, one thing about Charles is he did not play above the rim. And we all knew it. And we always felt it. Yeah, he had those two-handed sort of gorilla shack-like slam dunks there where he would swing on the rim. But he would never elevate and throw it down, which was mystifying because, like, I could dunk a volleyball and I'm, like, 11 inches shorter than the guy. So you would think all you have to do is elevate and put it in. But watching that replay again... First of all, uh, Stacey King committed a blocking foul on Ewing. Um, I don't remember if we were in the bonus. I have to imagine we were. The fourth quarter of a Knicks Bolt game, I have to imagine we were in the bonus at that time, which would have put Ewing at the line instead of him dumping it off to Charles. But moving on, Charles is now under the rim. He immediately gets the ball tipped away. That one was probably the one that could have been closest to a foul because if you examine the other one, they really get all ball every time because the one time where they didn't get all balls and didn't actually have the ball, he lost it. That was the one where he goes back up, but he doesn't have possession. And so he has to go back down, even though there's contact at that point, but they weren't going to bail him out because he didn't have the ball in his hand. So then when he goes back up again, that was the one where he should have just dunked it, but he, he was so, I don't, I don't want to say panic because, I, I, I mean, it seems clear that he panicked in the moment, but he's not a panicky guy. Uh, all of these, you know, professional athletes are not panickers, otherwise they wouldn't have gotten there. But in that moment, he seemed to rush it. And if he had just sort of settled himself, elevated another couple inches, then the whole you know, history would have been rewritten. But the tough thing about that is, uh, later that night, um, yeah, I was out, and I'd obviously had a few, and uh, I ran into some Chicago Bulls fans, and they were giving me a real hard time, and we got into a scuffle, and I lost my wallet. Um, so I lost all my money. I lost all my identification, and because I was a stupid 20-something at the time, I didn't realize I had my social security card in there, too. So I, it, it took me months and months to get all my identification back. So I really had a complex relationship to Charles Smith in that play. It really affected my life for a long while. And Steve, you know, you talk about all, all those tough breaks for both the Knicks organization and yourself personally there, but then getting a little bit ahead of ourselves with where we are right now in the last dance, but Jordan hangs it up to go play baseball after winning the three-peat in 93. Mm -hmm. What was the feeling around the organization that now the greatest player of the generation has cleared the way for the Knicks to possibly seize control of the Eastern Conference, which they do one year later? 
Yeah, well, Scottie Pippen had the opportunity to show that he was as good as people were making him out to be. And he sure came close to making it work. Uh, luckily, the Knicks were able to persevere. Now, you know, we can call that a dubious foul call on Hubert Davis. As a, as a shooter myself, I will say that if you cannot extend your hand after a shot and there's contact, that will affect the shot. So I feel like that was a legitimate foul call. But much like they didn't call the foul on Carl Smith, uh, they did call the foul on Scotty Pippen there, uh, and that was, that ended up being the difference. Yeah, it didn't feel as complete, you know, honestly, to vanquish the Bulls. Sure, great. You know, to beat them in seven uh, without Jordan was frustrating, but did that matter? No, we were moving on, and that's all that really mattered. That's all that we cared about. Um, you know, it's just unfortunate that you ran into the buzzsaw that was the one player in the league besides Shaquille who really at that time could give Ewing real fit was Akeem Olajuwon. And, uh, and then to have that somewhat futuristic roster around him with everyone from Ori and Ellie and Cassell and Maxwell and Kenny the Jet Smith. Um, I mean, you know, every single player that they had on that team was exactly the type of player we couldn't really handle because we had an inside-out built team and we didn't, we were not prepared to be able to defend the three-point shot like they were going to be able to shoot it. And, you know, the real, the real shame of it all, if I can digress for a second about, you know, how much I love that Knicks squad, is if you think about where the Knicks were at that time, having beaten the Pacers in seven, um, having beaten the Bulls, and now facing the Houston Rockets when they were in game six. And Akeem Olajuwon got his fingernail on that three-point attempt from John Starks. If John Starks had hit that three-pointer, he had beaten Reggie Miller, who, after Jordan retired, was sort of assumed to be the best off-guard, two-guard in the NBA, John Starks is poised to be the, the finals MVP. He was averaging, I think, 26 points a game. Uh, he had something like 33 or 35. Would have been, I think it was 33, would have been 36 if he hit that three to win the game and the series and the championship. But Akeem Olajuwon, I guess, didn't cut his nails that day. And the next night, two for eighteen, or the next game anyway, two for eighteen, and you know, we all know where that goes. Yeah, I gotta say, like that series. I mean, that does bring back some bad memories for Knicks fans. This whole this whole thing does. But I want to circle back to like the, that Bull series for a minute. I mean, like knowing that like they don't have Jordan, this is our shot to beat them. Like, how nerve wracking is it when you get to Game Seven, knowing like we might lose this team again? Like as the organization wise, going like even though they don't have Jordan, Pippen might lead them right past us. Like, if we can't beat them now, when will we ever beat these guys? I didn't feel like they were feeling it, if you will. I mean, nervous, whatever you want to call it. Um, but that that is really, frankly, what separates us mere mortals from, from the gods that are professional 
basketball players is their ability to, I was thinking about this during the last dance uh, broadcast. Uh, I don't know if you guys have seen for love of the game, the Kevin Costner pitching the, the perfect game he throws against the Yankees as a Detroit Tiger. It's like a romantic movie or something with Charles Preston. Did I ever see it? Yeah. Yeah, I've seen it. So there's a, there's a moment in the movie where he says, clear the mechanism. I was standing on the mound, and all of a sudden, all of the crowd goes to white noise, and everything blurs around it. All he can see is the batter and the catcher. Um, I don't really feel like that exists in basketball. It's moving too quickly, and there isn't enough static movement where you're standing on the rubber, everything, you know, just pitching to home plate. Everything is the same and repetitive. It's too fluid. Football, uh, sorry, basketball is too fluid for that to exist. So for them to be able to shut out all of the peripheral noise, whether it's in-game, during-game, post-game, you know, again, another thing that you see in, in the, this docuseries is how much time was demanded of Jordan and how much it chased him. How, and he's not, obviously, he's not the only one. He's just the most popular one. But every time, whenever Magic, he only came into town once a year. You know, any Western Conference player would come into town once a year. Sean Kemp was the big one back in the early days. Um, and and they, everyone wants their time. And to be able to shut that out and then go onto the floor and perform is impressive enough. Uh, to do it in front of celebrities, you think would, would affect them. And frankly, that's the one thing that does seem to impact them in the moment. Other than that, but yes, you hear, you've heard LeBron say, I play in front of fans, fans giving my energy. Uh, if you're watching the Shaq-like show that got on CBS or TNT, he says the same thing, like fans are what feed my energy. Um, obviously, these guys play without a crowd when they're practicing and playing pickup games. Um, but the crowd obviously does affect them. But to answer your question, Ian, like, the Knicks didn't really seem like they were Nervous. Obviously, they weren't going to share with me. I'm just some peon, but uh, but they weren't they weren't visibly nervous. But you could feel the tension, definitely, for sure. And and you know, I think that's why sports become so popular, and so many people like it because the athletes are able to put themselves in a different mindset that we all aspire to get to but know that we can, and that's what makes them so different and, and why they're looked at as the, the best in the game are looked at as, as heroes and icons for so many people growing up and, and even full-grown adults. Uh, it's, a, it's a form of admiration. Two quick stories to just sort of accentuate that point. One, um, I love golf. I love playing golf. After I, I, when I was working in sports, I got to golf a lot, but then when I was working in corporate sales, I got to golf a lot. And so I got my handicap down really low. Uh, and it became known within my company that I was a very good golfer. And so then we would have golf outings for our company. And they would put me as the A golfer of the group. And then I would be in the first group to see off because everyone wanted to watch me play. And I am a decent golfer, too, too. All right? I speak my own horn. I'm a pretty good golfer. You put me in front of a crowd and put me on the tee, the chances that ball's going down the center of the fairway is like one in a hundred. I mean, I would blast that thing into the woods. I would hit a worm burn, whatever the case may be. 
performing in front of a crowd is a different thing than performing on your own. John Elway actually said at one of those celebrity golf tour uh, events that was broadcast on TV in Lake Tahoe, he said, I've won Super Bowls. I'm in the Hall of Fame. Nothing compares to standing over a five-foot putt that matters with TV cameras on you. So, you know, even they can feel the pressure in a situation that they're not comfortable, but that gets into Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hours. When you've done it enough, so many times, that it's second nature, you know, that's how you're able to see Michael Jordan smirk at the guy on the, you know, uh, standing in the lane as he's at the free throw line, and then he gives a little grin and then closes his eyes and swishes a free throw. How? Because he's taken 10 million of those things before that day, and so it's no big deal for him. Yeah, this is my last question for you. I mean, like, obviously, you've been you were at the Garden with the Knicks for five years. You saw Jordan come in a bunch of times. Like, like, what was your favorite like Jordan memory? Like, what like is it one particular game or like moment where you saw him do something? You're like, wow, I've never seen a player do something like this in my life. Well, um, you can't actually see me uh, because I'm standing behind someone, uh, but I am. It, 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 Jordan's favorite dunk of all time, over Ewing, where he fakes out Stark and then goes back sideline and then spins back baseline and Oakley sort of shoves Stark to the ground as he goes around Oakley and then dunks on Ewing. I was standing right there watching that. Like, I could not have been closer uh, unless I was on the floor myself. So... That moment, that was the first year I was with the team. We lost to the Bulls in the playoffs. Um, and uh, and watching him dunk on Ewing, who was such a hero of mine, that's when, from that moment on, I'm like, all right, I, I, you know, I may hate Jordan and the Bulls, but I love MJ. I mean, this guy is just incredible. Yeah, he definitely is. And I want to thank both of you guys for coming on today, having this conversation. It's definitely a lot of fun. You get a chance to plug your social medias. Ian, you want to go first? Sure, Mike. First off, you know, thanks so much for having me on once again and uh, look forward to coming on again. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at, at Ian R. Sachs. It's at I A N R S A C K S. All right, that's awesome. Steve, how about you? If you want to keep up with you on social media. Yeah, sure. You can follow me on Twitter at SteveAnastas. That's A-N-A-S-T-A-S. At SteveAnastas. All right. Thank you both, guys. That was a fun conversation. I'm going to dive into the episode next with Alan Austin, Zach Cohn-Dug. Let's do the full recap right after this. We are back week three of the last dance coverage here on the just End the suffering podcast. Very happy to be breaking it down with one of my favorite podcast duos ever. We talked to them back in December talking about the fantasy football playoffs. It's the guys in the fantasy world podcast are here talking about it today. First up, we just heard from a couple weeks ago, giving us his playlist of quarantine streaming options. Alan Austin's back with us. Alan, how are you? Good to be back, Mike. How are you? 
doing pretty good, hanging in there. And back with us for the first time since fantasy football season, Zach Cohn Douglas. Zach, how are you? Not too bad, Mike. Not too bad, all things considered. Yeah, at least we have this thing going for us. We got another couple of weeks of uh, last dance to carry us to give us a little bit of a sports taste. Absolutely. Yeah, as I do with everybody who comes on this spot here, I get your knowledge base on the ball. Zach, I'll go with you because obviously you were not like really like around the experience much. So what do you know about this Bulls dynasty beforehand? Um, yeah, I wasn't really like old enough at the time to really experience the Bulls, you know, when they were in their prime. But I played basketball all my life. Uh, I played basketball in college, so like coming up, um, I was like a big basketball historian, so I took it by myself to just, you know, look up what the Bulls were about and what they accomplished. Um, but I mean, even with that being said, you know, there's so much that I've learned just from watching this series that, you know, they don't tell you in articles, you know what I mean, in, in books. Um, so it's been, it's been a really fun experience as a basketball fan and player. Yeah, definitely, and Al, I'm very excited to actually talk to somebody who, like me, actually was around old enough to actually see this happen, experience this whole thing. What are your memories of that last year of the Bulls? So I I grew up a Bulls fan because of Michael Jordan, obviously. I wouldn't say I was like a trivia or statistician diehard. I liked the Bulls. I watched the Bulls. I was a big fan of, you know, Jordan, Pippen, Rodman, Tony Kukoc, Steve Kerr, like all those guys. I love them all. I used to play NBA uh, hang time, and you could only have two players on your team. I would always mix it up because I just loved all those guys. But what I remember the most, I would have to say, is is the series against the Jazz. That's what sticks out in my head. Like As I watched the documentary, obviously the first three championships, I don't remember at all. I was even too young for those. So it's really that later era Bulls team that connected with me. So in the segments in the last dance where they're, let's call it the modern time of 1998 as opposed to the flashback, that's what I remember the most, and that's what I connect with. Now, I think I was a little too young to know all the back dealings, all the Jerry Krause stuff. I don't quite remember all the storylines, but I do remember the games and the, and the series. So that's where I'm at with it. Yeah, I'm with you in the sense that where, where like I didn't was at times not aware of all the stuff with like the bad blood with like Pippen being underpaid and Rodman's like escapades off the court where he's going to Vegas for weekends. I just remember the games. I remember like everywhere they went, it was just these massive crowds of people that like you don't even really see today. With like even like LeBron doesn't draw that, that much attention like Jordan those Bulls did. Yeah, I, like I remember first of all that series, the 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 Jazz series. Stockton, Malone, Jordan, Pippen, like, to me, that's the, that's the basketball series that I remember first and foremost in my life. So that is what I remember, all the stuff about, and we'll get into it in this episode, but there's a lot of stuff that was brought to light for me that doesn't really change how I view them, but it definitely informed me more so. Yeah, indeed. Let's not wait any longer here. I'm going to put up our good old-fashioned spoiler warning. Okay, those of you who are listening to the podcast who have not seen through episode six of The Last Dance, you don't want to be spoiled, get out, go watch the episodes, go on the ESPN app, watch it. But it's been a lot of fun, and the thing, they got you right away. I mean, Zach, right at the top when they have the bit from the All-Star Game 98 when 
get the Kobe Bryant footage. Like, this gave me chills, knowing, like knowing what we know now. Yeah, it was pretty. I mean, I've heard it described as surreal. I think that's, that's a pretty accurate description. Um, it just it was really weird, you know, just watching him talk about his relationship with Michael. And the only thing I could really think about the whole time was how we're not really going to get a Kobe documentary like that. You know what I mean? With him, like 20, 30 years later, explaining, you know, all the things that went on with him and his championship runs. So that's, you know, that was pretty disappointing. But it was really cool to see how serious um, all those guys took the All-Star game back then. You know, it was like a real... Um, pride thing. I know we kind of started to see it the last All-Star game, but um, I didn't really realize you know, how competitive all those guys were against each other. Yeah, indeed. And before we go any further, I do have the clip I pulled offline of the of Kobe describing his relationship to uh, MJ, so let's listen to Kobe's wor- own words on that. At that point, Michael provided a lot of guidance for me. Like, I had a question about shooting this turnaround shot. So I asked him about it, and you know, he gave me a great detailed answer. But on top of that, he said, if you ever need anything, give me a call. It's like my big brother. You know, I truly hate having discussions about who would win one-on-one. And you're a fan saying, hey, Kobe, you beat Michael one-on-one. I feel like, yo, what you get from me is from him. I don't get five championships here without him because he guided me so much and gave me so much great advice yeah alan what do you think about that, that stuff that he just said there he basically points out and says without mj we don't have five championships from me i mean i i think that's a nice gesture but let's not discredit kobe's skill set too you know what i mean like you can lead a horse to water so to speak but kobe took all that and was able to drink the water so to speak so you had a guy who was super talented, and he can homage and say it's credit to MJ, but he's right up there in the upper echelon of all-time players himself. So I don't want to sell himself short, but it's nice to think that one of the great mentors, someone who took all that advice, ran with it, and became a great in his own volition and wound up winning five championships. Yeah, Zach, there's an interesting point I just thought of as well with this, because talk about the... You know, everybody compares Jordan, LeBron, Jordan, LeBron, Jordan, LeBron. How about a Kobe, LeBron comparison? What are your things about that? Um, yeah, I feel like the Kobe, LeBron comparison goes to a similar place as the the Kobe MJ, or not the Kobe MJ, the LeBron and MJ uh, debate, just because you know how similar Kobe and MJ were. I think like the one thing for me personally, I believe that LeBron James is overall just more talented than both of those guys. But I think what separates MJ and Kobe um, is how competitive they were. And that really stands out in this um, documentary for MJ particularly. Um, but Kobe was kind of the same way. Like, they were ultra-competitive to the point where it would interfere with their everyday life. You know what I mean? And it resonated to their teammates. And I don't really think that we'll probably I don't I think we'll ever see, you know, guys that competitive um going forward. I really you know what I mean? I think the the way basketball has changed, I think those were kind of like the last of a dying breed. Uh, I would agree with that. I would agree and I would just like to add that 
We also see it in the style of play, like the whole Pistons and everything they've gone over. That'll never happen again. And it's not that the league is softer. It's just a different time. Like the players are making a lot of money and they don't need to, you know, it, it, I don't want to say they're not all competitive, but it's just a different outlook. No, I agree with that. Yeah. I think like to that point, um, players make so much money now that I don't think it's about pride as much. I know there's definitely pride involved, but I think when you're, you know, when your life is like and you're making that much money, it's a little bit different than as when you're just grinding, you know, trying to get by, and you're not, you're, you have money, but you're not extraordinarily wealthy or famous. I think it's a lot more. It comes down to pride and wanting to win, beat the other guy, um, in that instance. And I don't think we see that kind of mentality as much. So no, I, I totally agree with that. Adam. And and we see a lot of guys who are trying to pile on stats or, you know, get get their social media presence up. It's not always about, yeah, they were good enough to get to the NBA, but I don't think winning a championship or not winning a championship will break the hearts of some players. And and maybe I'm wrong. It's just what I see. No, I think that's fair. I think that's a fair statement. I, I agree. Just, I mean, we've seen it throughout this series. That's really how Jordan and my guest earlier in the podcast, Stephen S. has made a great point of this. Like, Jordan just had this ability to, like, find a slight wherever he could to give himself the extra motivation to go over the top. We saw it in the, this episode, episode five, with back to the 92 finals and how, like, he made a point to prove that he was better than Clyde Drexler. And he basically just, at the beginning of game one of, those, of that finals with the Trailblazers, he's just nailing threes, nailing threes, and then, goes over, gives the famous shrug to Magic Johnson, who's doing the game for NBC, saying, like, this is, like, and you think he's better than me? And it's just, it became just a, such a famous thing, as he was just so bent to prove the people wrong who said that Kawhi was as good as he was. Yeah, I think his competitiveness also came out in just the dream team practices, which were amazing to watch, by the way. I want more footage of those, by the way. I would, I would pay to watch uncut just that whole... Uh, practice that would be a documentary in itself absolutely because that team is the most you can look at any sports let's even say an all-star team there to me there's no greater lineup of just the elites than that dream team in any sport yeah it's true i think they are by far the best team a story about the practice that you're talking about i mean Hearing Magic talk about how he insulted Jordan and Jordan basically scored every point down to try to help his side win the scrimmage, I thought was just amazing. Yeah, I, I find Jordan's competitive. Obviously, it's not necessarily basketball only, as, as Zach hinted. Jordan seems to be competitive about anything. Like we saw in the in the second episode, he was playing like you know little gambling games with with the security. Like he's just always looking for that of competition and he has to win and he doesn't it doesn't sit right with him when he's not winning at every little thing in life and it it, it almost comes off as this like crude outlook but really I just think it's his mindset is just the win yeah. and in yeah it comes off as arrogant and yeah it comes off as whatever but you don't get to the spot Michael Jordan's in without some kind of aggressiveness without some kind of desire something is embedded in his psyche his psychology that is getting him there for better or worse yeah no i agree i think for this i think also what um goes into him being such like a rare 
sports figure and just like in terms of gener- like basketball, in terms of the generational talent we've had, I think that's kind of why he stands alone because not only was he so talented and so athletic um, and such a hard worker, but he was so competitive to the point where it's probably impractical how, how competitive he actually was. Like, if you, you can't really imagine Michael Jordan really being in any other setting and hit that amount of competitiveness really being okay. You know what I mean? But because he was in basketball and because he was so good, it drove him to really, like, a next level that no one has really, you know, been at. He was, but I think his prime was probably the best prime of any player yeah, in and history. I, I think you can piggyback that with the endorsements. I think he welcomed it all the McDonald's, all the sponsorships. It, I feel like, based on what we've seen, it helped him feel even like he's winning even more to be landing all these endorsements, to be landing all these contracts. It just kept, He kept pushing himself to do more and more and more. And I can't imagine what it's like for him to sit and watch the Charlotte Hornets not be good right now. Like, oh, I didn't even think about that. Like, it must be <laughs> driving him insane that they are not even close to what seems like the next level. It's pretty crazy how good of a player he was and how bad of a general manager and talent about who he turned out to be. Like, he left, you're right, that must be driving him absolutely nuts. Because the Hornets, the Hornets even been, you know, anything above an eight season he's been hit. I don't know if they've, you know, achieved I'd have to look that up. I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if they've won anything. It's funny because he goes back to how much he resents Jerry Krause. And how he's like, oh, Jerry Krause is a horrible GM. Jerry Krause built that whole thing. And I want to go to Tony Cucho just a second, who was one of the big like stars episode five where we got the beginnings of Tony Kukoc with the Bulls. See Krause scouting him, thinks he's the future of basketball. And then, of course, because Krause likes him, the Bulls don't. And Jordan and Pippen basically decide, you know what, like, we're going to dominate this dude at the Olympics. And they just shut him down the first game. So, like, I felt bad for Kukoc. I'm like, this poor kid is playing out in Croatia. He has no idea these guys are going to As he said, like, I haven't even met them yet, and they already hate me. Yeah, after I, I kind of felt bad for him. Um, I was really I didn't know they played again. To be honest, I, I forgot that detail, and I didn't. I was kind of impressed with how well he did um, in the second game because I didn't really know much about that. I don't, and that's the funny thing. Like, who coach is kind of the one guy from that later part of the dynasty that doesn't really get talked about um, ever. You know what I mean? They talk about Steve Kerr a lot. Um, they talk about um, Horace Grant a lot. They don't really talk about who coach. You know, you know what I mean? Kids, like people today don't really know Kukoc's game and what he was about, but um, he was he was really impressive. He came off as really impressive in the document. And I, I really appreciated what Michael Wilbon said. He was like, "This kid's been through a lot more tough stuff in life than just basketball, so let the guy like live and let, let's see what he's really made of because he's more of a person than just the Jerry Krause pawn." So I was really appreciative that they threw that in there. Yeah, I also have to say, too, like, seeing Kukoc's game, like, Kukoc was definitely before his time. I mean, if you look at Tony Kukoc in today's NBA, he would be like a star as a stretch four. Absolutely. Yeah. He reminded me a lot of um, Andre Karolinko. I got, I got serious Karolinko vibes from uh, Tony Kukoc. You know, it's, we, we often hear, oh, MJ wouldn't be MJ in today's game. MJ, blah, 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 blah. I... I think a lot of these guys would dominate today's game, quite honestly. Yeah. And I think they would have to tone it down, in fact, to 
to like fit in a little bit. Yeah, I mean, think about this for sure. Because I mean, you're right. Like you, you drop Jordan in today's game when there's no hand checking and he's not getting clobbered. He goes down the lane. He's gonna score like 45 a game. Yeah, and, no, that's and, true. Something I was thinking about though when I was watching is how you know people like to to think about how their games are translated, but it's just funny to think about um, how they mentioned Magic Johnson was telling the media that you know oh, you're gonna drive. Jordan out of the game when they, they were talking about his gambling. I don't know how many of those guys would have been able to handle the mental pressure into this game because it's totally different. You know what I mean? There's around the clock coverage. You got it's, it's definitely down. worse. It's worse. Yeah. Man. So I think I think that's something that you know a lot of people overlook because that, back then they talked about it. They barely had any you know coverage. So I think that would be a, a serious factor for a lot of players. Well, I think you've seen some players who can't handle it. The ones who, I, you know, it's it's where I think LeBron, all, like LeBron's had a couple slip-ups here and there on social media where he's maybe said things that don't come out right. But I think LeBron, Michael Jordan, I think they're different in that way. Like that's one thing I don't think you can compare them is their public persona. And it's funny because they're both going to be Space Jam guys. But I do think... MJ would not have done well with Twitter and all that. Right. It makes you wonder, like, how long would he have actually played if he was in today's game? Like, he could barely handle the media scrutiny from the gambling, and that was, like, one season. And and this is where I think LeBron, you know, doesn't really get the credit. I mean, he's been getting nonstop coverage since he was in high school. You know, news coverage from all levels. And he's taken that with grace and in stride. And I think that's something, you know, people kind of downplay. But, I mean, it's really, it's, some, it's something to behold. Because I don't think we'll really see that ever again. But, I mean, we kind of did with Zion, but really not even to that level. For sure. And I think there's another key difference between the two. And that is public outreach. I think LeBron, you know, he started his own school. And then you have the other side of the coin, which is MJ, who almost, never spoke up about anything and they pointed it out in this fifth episode with the uh, North Carolina political campaign where he didn't do anything. Uh, he said he made a donation because his mom asked him to. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah Especially Jer- for a guy who's done so many public appearances, you would like to see it, but... Yeah, Jordan's definitely more of a back behind the scenes guy. We saw this footage of him like taking time for the Make-A-Wish kids and stuff like that where like he... We saw it a bit in the hotel thing, too, because, like, he was such a megastar at the time. Like, he was up there, like, Muhammad Ali levels of fame, like, stuff like that. I mean, we got this great clip. I have this moment in there where he's basically talking about, like, you know, like, I was, you know, he talks about how, like, this life is just not for him after a certain point. You know, this is not a, a one of those lifestyles that you envy, you know, where you can't, you're confined to this, in, this, this room. I'm ready for getting out of this life. You know, so you you know when you get to that point, I'm there. Yeah, I mean, Alan, it kind of says it all. Because, like, I mean, a unironic commentary of what today's quarantine life is like. But, like, he basically, when he left that hotel room to go to the arena, he basically was, like, had to be on his game 24-7, 365. And, like, that's a lot for one person to take. It's a lot for, yeah, it's a lot for anybody. Not to mention a guy who... And, and I just want to point out, like, 
for the sake of the documentary, the gambling stuff, they, they have to show moments of doubt. They have to show moments of, um, uh, you know, having to overcome odds. And we don't know because we were not there in the moment just how serious it all was, but it sounds pretty serious. So you have a guy who's very prideful. You have a guy who's very competitive, who always wants the upper edge. And he can't control the media. And here he is just trying to live his life. And I kind of agree with what MJ says in the documentary. He never gambled his life away. He didn't ruin anybody's life. He had the money to cover it, and it never got out of hand. Let the man live. And when you're on top, everybody's, you know, stones at glass houses. Like, everybody's coming after you. And I know me, it would have driven me insane to know that I'm living as well as I can be and people are still trying to rip it away from me. I would have been done. So yeah, it, it puckered him out. And for sure, he definitely had to fight any urges he had to snap, which I'm sure he had. And for the most part, we're sitting here today, he's still the greatest of all time. So it all worked out, but that's a lot for one man to handle. And like you said, here he is out with the Make-A-Wish case. Here he is, you know, doing as many interviews as he can, trying to appease as many people as he can. And still people are coming after him. That's so much to take. I think he would average 50 points a game just off of Twitter slander alone. That's a I great that, point. That's a I great think point. That, I think that alone, I think if Michael played today just just off of that, um, he'd probably, you know, have won even more championships just because there's so much more slander. There would have been Jordan slander all over the timeline, especially, like, with him not speaking up about um, like social justice issues, which I'm sure he wouldn't have. I mean, he'd probably be getting fried on social media, <laughs> come out the next game and drop like 70 points. I just totally see that. Yeah, I don't think, and I don't think he'd go like the burner account route. I think no. he'd go the opposite, where he yeah. like never talk to anybody, but still show up game time. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree. Yeah, I agree with that as well. I mean, it goes back to a little bit to like the whole thing of Jordan the brand, which we got at the beginning of the fifth episode, where like we talk, we got the backstory behind like a lot of the endorsements, including the Nike story, where like he basically made it clear it's like I had no desire to sign with Nike. I wanted to sign with Adidas because they were my shoe, they were my brand. But Adidas did not want to make shoes at that point, and I have to say, poor decision from Adidas. Hundred percent. And they literally, they said that when they signed Jordan to this contract, Nike, they gave him $250,000. They would make $3 million at the end of year three. They made $126 million at the end of year one. That's just like, unheard of. Probably the best investment in business history. Absolutely. It's got to be up there. It does. And we do have some, we did get some great true marketing from them too, including these great Mars Blackman commercial. I got to play one of them for us. I got this great one. The the shoes one. We saw a little bit last night. I got the full ad here. Yo, Mars Blackman here with my main man, Michael Jordan. Yo, Mike, what makes you the best player in the universe? Is it the vicious stunts? No, Mars. Is it the haircut? No, Mars. Is it the shoes? No, Mars. Is it the extra long shorts? No, Mars. Is the shoes it, right? Nah. Is it the short socks? No, Mars. Money's gotta be the shoes. Shoes, shoes, shoes. shoes. You sure it's not the shoes? I'm sure, Mars. What about the shoes? No, Mars. Money's gotta be the shoes. I mean, this is literally just so simple, so iconic, and it's gotta be the shoes. Right, guys? Gotta be. 
Yeah, I and, think that was. It's funny to see how like much Spike Lee molded the sports culture back then. You know what I mean? I I, I guess it's kind of showing my age, but I haven't really like seen that many Spike Lee movies. I've seen a couple, but I, he every time there's a big, you know, commercial in that time period, it was Spike Lee doing. Spike Lee definitely in the early '90s, early to mid '90s, was culturally more than just the director, and a lot of that had to do with the NBA. I mean, there are many a Nick folklore that that involves Spike Lee, and you can ask Reggie Miller about that. So for sure, Spike Lee was in the picture. Yeah, he was in the picture, and Jordan did a great job over the years, like branding himself as sort of like this all-American figure, and and we got a little bit of. Like some more of the, of the ads he's in, he did the McDonald's, he did the Gatorade, and Alan, I'm gonna play one for you. Let me know if you remember this one. Sometimes I dream that he is me. You got to see that's how I dream to be. I dream I move, I move, I dream I groove like Mike. If I could be like Mike. Remember those days? I'll put it this way. I was singing it so much today in the house that my fiance had to yell at me to stop. So, <laughs> yes, I, I, I do remember it. And I just want to point out my favorite MJ commercial, and it was the one with him and Larry Bird playing horse. That was my favorite as a kid. Yeah, a great all-time Super Bowl commercial, him and, and, and Larry playing horse for McDonald's burgers. I think it was one of the early, I think it was like the 92 Super Bowl, I want to say. Yeah, it was early on, but that's the one that I remember the most. But yeah, like Mike, of course, and then, you know, it sparked a movie that had nothing to do with Michael Jordan. But still, like, it had a, it had a, a resounding effect on pop culture, as he, as he did. So with episodes five and six, you're talking about his pop culture presence. There is nobody in the world who, let's say over the age of 20, who does not know Michael Jordan, who Michael Jordan is, even if they've never seen a basketball game. Like, it's just a name. Like, Babe Ruth, like Michael Wilbon said, you know, he is one of the most famous people in the world. Yeah, and the point you brought up, I really want to address again, the whole scandal about, like, oh, should he have supported the black senator running for office in Washington? He had that offhanded comment, a guy in a lot of war time, about, oh, Republicans buy sneakers too. So, like, it's a very brand-conscious move by Jordan. And, like, Zach said a couple of times, like, if that something like that happened today, like, that would not have gone over well in the Twitter age. Well, he would have gotten half support. That that kind of comment would have gone over very well with the other side of the argument. So everything is so hot and cold right now, he wouldn't have isolated everybody with that comment. But the point is, like, I feel like in today's world, because he's getting ripped apart on social media today because the documentary played it on Sunday. So, like, it definitely does not hold up well even now, that comment. But what do you yeah. do? You can't force anybody to act a certain way. And you can say you have a social responsibility all you want. If he doesn't feel comfortable doing it, he really shouldn't have to. I think the thing about um, MJ's persona is I don't think it really could have been like that in today's society. Like, I think what happened with MJ was just such a perfect storm. Um, I think there's so much going into it. And I think his persona kind of transcended race. 
in a way. And I feel like that's not really possible as much these days. Like, it's a lot harder. Like, before pre-trial O.J. Simpson kind of had a similar image, you know what I mean? He was really loved by everybody. everybody. You know what I mean? Yeah. He really didn't have any enemies before, obviously, until the whole thing with the trial completely changed that. But before that, it was kind of like a similar image. And I think that was just something that was possible during those times because of how singular the stream of media was. You know what I mean? There wasn't that many sources. So you could really mold a really pristine image for yourself that's, you know, almost, it's like above a human level, it's like some kind of urban legend. Like it's not even like a real person almost at that point. Yeah, and I, I just want to rectify what I said or, or put it in clearer terms. I said that if he's not comfortable making a statement, he shouldn't have to. But being society the way it is, if there's a good cause and he has the power of cult of personality and it's something for the better of mankind, I think there is a certain responsibility for celebrity to say something. And I know that's not always the most popular opinion, but I do think if there is a certain level of outreach he has that not many others do, and he can make a positive change on the world, why not take that opportunity? So I kind of see the both sides of the coin. If he's not comfortable, he shouldn't have to. But if he has the power to make to affect change for the better, he should also use it. That's just my opinion. Yeah, I, no, I agree. I'm just trying to imagine right now Michael Jordan in the Donald Trump era and how insane that would have been. You know what I mean? Because in, in, in times like these, being quiet is almost as bad as keeping up. You know what I'm saying? So, like, I, imagine if Michael Jordan, like, voted for Trump or something like that. You know what I mean? Or said, like, I'm not getting involved. How cra- Exactly. Like, how crazy the sports landscape would have been at that time. So, and in today's NBA, that would not have fit. No, he would have been a, he would be a total outsider. And so that's kind of why I don't really see there being another player like Michael Jordan because he was just so singular in his mindset. It was it was almost like it's so impractical that I don't I don't see how in today's world someone comes up with that attitude. You know what I mean? It's kind of hard. Yeah, Mike, what do you think? Yeah, I think it's very good point, Zach makes because like he was so focused and so driven on like I have to be the best basketball player ever. Like he was there was not a whole lot of like like I mean he did Space Jam. There's not a whole lot of, like Michael Jordan wants to be an actor. Michael Jordan wants to start his own like production company. Like. We've seen LeBron has his own business ventures. A lot of these guys are worried about their fashion line and stuff like that. They, you would never see Michael Jordan going out and starting a fashion line in the middle of his career. He would be all like... Never. I mean, he, but I he think... He's in the face of the league at this point. You know what I mean? With how reclusive he is and how centered I, things are around, you know, social media and being presentable and being in, being in front of the camera. I think Mike would have resented that much. Like, you know what I mean? I think Jordan was probably best... In his time, I think he—that's what makes his career such a special case—is that everything happened at the exact moment it needed to, for for things to turn out the way they did. I just—I I just want to disagree with one thing. Uh, you say Michael Jordan wouldn't start his own fashion line, but he literally has the fashion line when it comes to shoes. Well, everybody does he, shoes. I'm just saying it's like you're not seeing like Russell Westbrook has like, oh, I wear this sh-, like. I have these designer shirts. I wear, I go down 
I wear a different outfit every game to show off my style. That's not something Jordan would be doing. I could see Jordan coming out with a boot cut, Dean Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> it could have happened. With a 23 on, on the back. Exactly. Yeah. I don't know. I just I I do think Jordan, even in today's world, would jump at the chance to make as much money as possible because he's a good businessman. So I I would not say that he would not be taking certain endorsements that would need him to be flashier and need him to put on a certain outfit because he did that already. So I I do think his business mind would not have escaped him in today's world just because of one media company. His business acumen is, is second to none. The guy's a billionaire. So I, yeah. I do think he would not lose sight of the big picture if he was like if he was today's Michael Jordan. That's fair. Yeah, I think that's fair. I do think also it was fun seeing in these episodes, seeing how much of a draw he was for not even just the fans, but the celebrities also. We had that montage that he, I think in Argo was in the fifth or sixth episode, but like of all the celebrities who are trying to get tickets to see him, including my personal favorite, the appearances from Jerry Seinfeld. And Jerry has something <laughs> interesting to say about the end of the Bulls run in 98. The similarity between the Bulls and Seinfeld, the show of the 90s, the team of the 90s, and I'm trying to make quitting the move of the 90s. Let the new people in. It's basically what the Bulls did, thanks to Jerry Krause, because Jerry basically forced the hand of the team, and then Michael ends up quitting the following year, and the new guys come in. You got the Spurs, you got the Lakers. Like, it's, it's Jerry unintentionally like foreshadowed what happens in the NBA. Yeah, I think the whole the thing I've learned the most about, I think, during this documentary, is like the relationship Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen had with Jerry Krause. I really knew nothing about that Thanks. going in, and just to see how toxic of a relationship it was um, is really just fascinating. Because, I mean, if, if this were, and not to keep putting it into the context of present day, but, I mean, with, I can't imagine how blog sites and Twitter accounts would have reacted to, to that kind of relationship. You know what I mean? It was so, so toxic for so long. It's a surprise it even lasted as long as it did, to be honest. Yeah, and I find it, I don't think, like the whole making quitting a thing is really just a product of the circumstance. Cause I think if things were hunky dory, Michael Jordan, like in today's NBA, Krauss would have been fired by now. Oh yeah. 100%. So, so I think like it really is just the front office, just making him upset and that's it. Like game over. So in today's NBA, I think the bulls would have kept going and they would have paid Pippen for sure. So it's just it's it's crazy to think what could have been and what already was on top of that. Yeah, I think also the funny th- the thing you mentioned there, I think it's true. Is like I also want to bring up the point about Jerry Krause. Like obviously he's in easily made the bad guy of this, and he doesn't get enough credit for the fact that he did make the bold moves to you know put this team together. Like he made the choice to go trade his picks to get Scottie Pippen out of. Uh, out of an NAIA, NAIA school in 1988, and he made the choice to trade for Dennis Rodman. And the rest of the league wouldn't touch him. Like, and it's and something. And coach. And coo coach. Another good p- p- point there. And this is something that the director Jason Hare has actually said in, in an interview with uh, Jalen Rose and Jacoby. Like after the show was done, he basically said that 
The unfortunate thing is that Jerry Krause obviously passed away like about a couple of months before the shooting began. Like Jerry Krause, he said, was the first person he's going to go talk to for this piece, before, but he died before. So that's why you're getting all this archival of Jerry Krause in it. So you get his voice. I in believe it. there was one phone call, like, my, like recent Jerry Krause clip. Yeah. If, I, if I'm not mistaken, there was like one. Yeah, the most recent I've seen Jerry Krause, like 2003. That's the most reason I've seen him. And uh, I just, there's one other thing about Michael I want to point out, and that's even when the cameras are rolling, he doesn't hide his true feelings. Like, you've seen him in this documentary be very short with people. You've seen him be very, like, crass with his teammates and everything. And there's that whole argument about the, uh, the Jordan Rule book that came out where they talk about how Jordan was kind of a jerk teammate. And I could, I could see that based on everything we've seen. But what's, is it enough that sh- should tarnish him the way they were implying in the show? I think there's a fine line. I, I think there's a fine line between like player coach and bully tactics, and we just don't know exactly what happened. And I do think that we saw some clips where he's just ruthless trying to get the best out of everybody. And I think especially in the 80s and 90s, that was not frowned upon as much as it would be today. No, I agree. And I think personally, as someone who's played a lot of basketball and been on a lot of basketball teams, I think it's really important to have that one guy on the team who's a jerk, you know what I mean, who's not afraid to say things that need to be said that might offend people or hurt people's feelings. I think something that Thorne did a really good job of is walking right on the edge of that line where he was such a dick at points to his teammates. You know what I mean? But also, when it really mattered, he leaned on them and he got the most out of them um, at the same time. And I think that's something that goes really underrated. Like, the one moment that um, jumped out into my mind was when Phil Jackson was talking about how he's not used to using his teammates and then Michael, it finally clicked with Jordan and he gets uh, Paxton for the game winner. You know what I mean? That was kind of a moment where I feel like he started to realize that just by being him and being vocal and his personality could affect the game and affect whether they win or lose. I think that's what really made him so special. It certainly helps that he's the best player in the world. Like, like who are you to tell him no or shut up when he's literally the best player around? Right. And he was so self-aware of that. You know what I mean? Yes, absolutely. He, was, he had such a big ego, but he was also so focused. I think it was a, that's a really hard line. You know what I mean? Because when you have a really big ego, there's distractions. You know what I mean? And you want to feel good about yourself. But he was never really trying to, trying to feel good about himself. No, I think the key here is that Michael Jordan never felt phony. It never felt like he had something to prove other than to be the best. It was never a, I need people to see me for me. It was, I need to show I'm the best. So it was more competitive than it was attention-seeking. So his he's going out there with the mentality, I'm the best, and you need to be the best next to me so we can all be the best. That's where it eventually got to, and that's when they really took off as a strategy. Yeah, I think this is something also relates to the whole argument we saw like in terms of the gambling. Is it just something that Jordan's just so competitive and want to be the best in pretty much everything, where it was like golf, throwing coins in the locker room, in the locker room, like playing a pickup game, like, he just had to be the best. And, like, that sort of ex- explained the gambling thing. We talked a little bit about how, like, he went to 
AC afterwards to try and after losing game two of the 93 Eastern Conference Finals of the Knicks to sort of blow off some steam and get the competitive juices going in a different environment. Like, I just think it was just fascinating to see, like, the extent to, like, of how much he loved to gamble. Yeah, I would hate to play a game of golf with Michael Jordan. That is probably <laughs> the most miserable 18 holes you can ever play. Even if you win, you're not having a good time. There's no way. <laughs> It's almost like you're gonna let him win just because you don't you don't want to deal yeah. with it. <laughs> I mean, you either gotta let him win or deal with the rap. You know what I found very interesting? Jordan admitting to in in court. Not that anyone should lie in court, but just right off the bat, he's like, "Yeah, that fifty-seven thousand dollar check was for a gambling debt." I just didn't want to say it at the time. Like, it to me that doesn't hurt him at all. Like the guy paid his debt gambled he knew what he was getting into that's that that's his choice in life so i don't know I, I have no problem with a lot of what everyone was going after him for no i think it was just like that he was so larger than life that's what i was trying to say before like his persona was so it was almost like he wasn't even like a real human being so when he was doing like something human was you know gambling it's not even like he was gambling to the extent that it was bad for him or his family, but just the fact that he was gambling, you know what I mean, doing something that some people wouldn't deem ideal, that was enough to, to for everyone to make it a story. That's like, it's so crazy how big, you know, Michael, like Michael Jordan, the figure, essentially was got bigger than Michael Jordan, the player. Yeah, it definitely was. And that's was. hard to do. It definitely was. I mean, maybe- yeah. We talked about we saw it back in episode one of this thing when he's talking about the traveling cocaine circus. How he's like, okay, I'm getting the hell out of this hotel room. I don't have nothing to do with going on in here. But he does have a vice in the form of gambling, and it makes him more human. As opposed to like all of his squeaky clean Michael Jordan, who sells his sneakers and drinks Gatorade and plays horse with Larry with Larry uh, Larry Bird from McDonald's Burgers. Like now we actually have ooh like a little scandal with Michael Jordan. That sort of like brought him the extra attention, which I'm sure he was not like happy to do with like. It's something I do in my free time. I do it responsibly. I'm not risking my kid's future with the gambling money here. I'm just, you know, doing, like, what I'm doing because I get enjoyment out of it. Yeah, it it makes him more relatable to the common man, if you ask me. Yeah, I didn't mind it. I didn't mind the gambling. Honestly, I kind of expected it. You know, once you start learning about how competitive he was, it's like there's no way a guy like that keeping that competitive as just to the basketball court. And he didn't, you know, he wasn't a drinker. He said he wasn't a smoker. So it's like, what, you know, what are you doing during that time? You're playing basketball, and then when you're not playing basketball, I'm sure that that fire never died. And that's kind of what made him so great. Not just, like, as a player, but just as a person. Like, that desire to always win, to me, is just really cool. Yeah, let's go. Let's let's start, like, wrapping up. I got two things I want to do with you guys. Number one. Like I have fun looking for the funny moments of the of the episodes every week. So, what was your funniest moment over the two hours this week? Funniest moment. I think your Seinfeld one is right up there. I got another Seinfeld one if you would like. I I'm got... trying to think. There was a moment that's on. It's like on the tip of my brain right now. I'm trying to give me one second. Let me think. Well, while you're thinking, I'll play the clip for Alan at the other of Seinfeld and Jordan talking in the locker room. That was actually pretty hilarious. How you doing? Good to see you. you since the photo set. These are a couple of your good friends right here. Every day we come in and watch the game, they're watching your show. Not saying sooner or later you gotta get tired of Seinfeld. Let's go, guys. 
Hi, Phil. All right, have a good game. Let's kick you out. Good to see you. All right, see you, dude. All right. This is not going to work, by the way. How do we get that out of there? Just keep the bottom mic on the How you doing? I think how, how casually Jerry reacts to getting kicked out of the locker room by Phil Jackson is hysterical. Yeah, I, I I did come up with another funny moment, and it was just the general trash talking during the, the Dream Team practice with Magic. Like, they moved the Chicago Stadium here. Even here, the refs are uh, helping Michael out. That that really got me going. I thought that was hilarious. Yeah, I was, I was going to say something similar. The, part, the one part about that that I found really funny was when Magic Johnson was talking about how when they went on the bus, it was just silent. Because I've definitely been in practices like that. And, you know, I mean, after practice, it's everyone's pissed off each other. No one's talking. And then for Badgie to break the ice with, well, I, all right, Chuck, I guess we shouldn't have pissed him off. I think I thought that part was hilarious. Like, yeah, Badgie that was just hilarious. Like, just a, such a genuinely funny guy. And another part I thought was really funny was when um, they were doing the photo shoot, when it was uh, Magic, MJ, and Larry. And they were standing there, and um, Magic was joking about how you can't touch him, or he gets, you know what I mean. And they're just goofing off. I don't know. I think Magic just seems like a really fun guy to be around. A hundred percent agree. Yeah, you know. Yeah, I think there's two we haven't hit on yet. I think we need to discuss is number one the thing that went viral: the security guard who beats Jordan at the corn cutting in the locker room does the shrug to Jordan. I thought that was great. Oh, everyone's been talking about that guy. <laughs> it's so funny because. I, like, he's just such the antithesis of everything, <laughs> like, Jordan represents, just, like, embodied in one person. And then it, just to see him, like, shrug MJ and just MJ's cold stare at him, that was, yeah, that was definitely a highlight of the episode. And the memes that have come and that have been great. Yeah, that's number one. Number two, this moment flies under the radar, but this is a great exchange between Phil Jackson and Dennis Robin at a country club. Yeah. I love how blazingly he's like, nah, I'm going to Hooters. I'm not going to the swimming pool. What a 90s thing to say, too. <laughs> I don't think I've heard Hooters reference in about 10 years. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that was, that was exciting. Not since, is like, not since Michael Scott went. Yeah, Dennis Rodman is another guy. Like, we'll probably never see someone like Dennis Rodman who like, could really just care less about pretty much anything, even basketball and, you know what I mean, being in the NBA, just so, you know what I mean, it's such an uh, avid party animal that's just out in the public, you know what I mean? I think he is just, it's so fascinating learning about him and just what, everything he did in his career because there's definitely not going to be another person like that drop. You know, I did find it interesting how much film he watched and how many notes he took with, like, the, the way he went about his business. Like, it almost didn't fit, but power to him. I mean, that stat. The guys had uh, so much energy. Yeah, the trivia about him having X amount of games with 20 rebounds and no points. Yeah, it was seven. I mean, yeah, that that's a crazy stat and shows how selfless he is on the court. It definitely does. And last thing I want to wrap up on is obviously we – Last week, we got the tease at the end about the Kraus pushing Jordan out. We have a conversation this week with Jordan driving to a playoff game at the Madre Show. We're basically talking about, you know, like Patrick Ewing's basically, he'll play until he gets dragged off the court. I'm not like that. Like, I want to, like, be able to walk away on my own terms. So, like, what did you think about when you, we saw that conversation, how we ended the two hours? 
I find it as a good lead-in to what's coming next because you have the power struggle between Jordan and Krause. So you have a guy who wants to go out on his own terms, but will it be with the Bulls? You know what I mean? Like, it's such a great tease for what still could come. So I thought it was excellent storytelling. Yeah, I was just, you know, I wasn't really that surprised that he said something like that because I feel like by that time, he has reached such high heights that for him and just dominating the NBA on such a such a level. I mean, the only person that's really there's only a couple people who have dominated the way he dominated, but you could argue that his heights were greater than anyone else's. So, I mean, that him saying that it didn't really surprise me because I mean, when you're a guy like Michael Jordan, he's done all he's done. It's like, where do you go from there? You know what I mean? You play another 10 years and win every year. I'm sure for him, as crazy as it sounds, I'm sure it got a little boring at points. Yeah, and I, I just want to say my last thing before we wrap up. I just want to say this documentary just solidifies for me the fact that I know Michael Jordan is the best basketball player of all time. I 100% agree with you. And I think the, the debate between him and LeBron, I think, ends with this documentary. I think he, we have enough evidence here. We still have four hours to go, by the way. There's still more we can get, but enough. All I'm ready see. for the baseball talk. Yeah, I'm ready for the story, because I think next week, they said episode seven is supposed to be the biggest one, where we find out about him walking away. We And we have never really gotten a good answer from him, so I'll be curious to see what we get out of him in this episode. For sure. I'm excited. I've definitely never heard the story, so I'm looking forward to it. I don't think anybody's really heard of his story. All we know is like the basic backstory about how like his father was killed in the off season. And right before the year 93, 94 season starts, he quits to go play minor league baseball because his dad wanted to be a baseball player. We ever really get the full version. ESPN even did 30, 30 years ago about this and then and he didn't participate in it. So now right. we get his, his perspective on it, presumably. So it'd be interesting to see like if there was more of a story than what was originally reported. But with that, we are gonna, that's going to be a tale from next week. I'm going to be recapping episode 7, 8 next week with two of my high school buddies, Dan Martini, the golf guy of the podcast, and Phil Lombardo. We obviously lived through a lot of the Jordan era here, so we have some good memories to share. I want to thank you two for coming on here. I'll give you a chance to plug your social medias. Alan, how about you? Thanks for having me, Mike. Yeah, uh, on social media, uh, Twitter, at Alan, A-L-L-E-N, underscore Austin, underscore. And then on Instagram, Alan Austin Sports. All right, Zach, how about you? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at um, RIP underscore GE. Awesome stuff. Thank you, guys. And coming up next, we're going into the pop culture portion of the program. We are talking the finale of Westworld with Sandra, with Sandra Rose, our pop culture correspondent. And Zach saw this before, we were talking off the air for that. He's a big Westworld guy, Zach. Before we get into this, can you give me your grade in the finale of the, of the season? The grade, I was given an A. I thought the finale um, really tied the whole season together. I liked where they ended up going with it. Um, and it's just, it's a great place to leave off. It'll leave me really, really excited for what they're going to do next. Yeah, I'm excited too. I'm going to go into the full Westworld season finale wrap up with Sandra Rosa right after this. All right, we are back here on the Just End the Suffering podcast, the Westworld season finales in the books. Joining me today to break it all down, our podcast pop culture correspondent, the great Sam DeRosa. Sam, welcome. How are you? I am good. Thanks for having me. 
Not a problem. And I got to say, I think this is a fun finale. Like, what would you give it as a letter grade? I don't think you're going to like my letter grade, but I'd give it like a C plus B minus, to be completely honest with you. Interesting. Why is that? Yeah. I don't know. I just like, I don't know if I just wasn't like the right audience for it this year. Uh, just for the fact that I'm very pro, like, the park stories. Like, first season, great, like, perfect. Second season, eh. And then this season, I'm like, it's just so far away from Westworld from what it was. But I feel like maybe it's just, like, my own personal issues. But I feel like maybe next year will be a little bit better. But we'll, I, I won't, like, go too far into it. Because I know we have a lot to talk about. We do. And I just spoke to... Zach Cohn Douglas on the last dance recap. He's a big Westworld guy. He gave it an A, so I'm curious to he see. Gave it, I, okay, maybe I have to rewatch it now. Now I feel like a, a dum dum or something. <laughs> yeah, well, Zach gave it an A. Before we go, let's go ahead and throw the spoiler warning off so we can actually get into the big stuff. All right, you have been warned. If you have not watched season three of Westworld, get out. Go watch the this, this season. Come back and listen to us break it down because a lot happened. A lot of people died. I'm going to say, first off, R.I.P. Dolores, R.I.P. William, and R.I.P. Stubbs, question mark. I mean, I don't think he made it out of that tub. I was going to say, yeah. <laughs> that, I hope he did because, like, everyone, like, made fun of uh, Luke Hems- Hemsworth's character, Stubbs. I'm like, you know what? I really hope that he's just like powered through and then he's living his own life without like having a main, you know, symptom. Like he was programmed by um, Bernard. Oh my God. By Bernard. And I'm just like, you know what? I hope he like unprogrammed himself. Like he just like, like saw the light, got educated and like did his own thing. I hope he's not dead. I actually, I don't mind him. Everyone's like, what's his purpose? I'm like, I don't mind stuff. (laughs) Yeah, Stubbs is a little bit of a – he's got a soft spot in my heart, Stubbs. I do like the character because he's very snarky. He's got the great sense of humor. I feel like he's a valuable president of the show. I hope we get Luke Hemsworth in season four. Yeah, and it would be great for all those haters out there. I <laughs> think have him back for next season. Yeah, so let's touch on the Dolores one. I feel like that's the one we got to go to first. The headline here is that Dolores is dead. Her plan – basically, find out that her plan is not, like – he can bring the complete end to mankind as we thought it was for most of the season. We find out that she's trying to give mankind a choice to shut down the Rehoboam and make them, let them make their own path and using Caleb to do it. So what do you think of how we found out her plan was revealed? Um, It was, it was nice. I mean, when you're brought back her like central um, ideals of who she was as a host at the park, like that was interesting you know it's just like the world is beautiful you know like there's beauty in this world and everything um how they like brought it like about i just don't know it's just like how i'm just like very impartial to the season um i was like i was like i think she's dead but then i'm like is she gonna actually be dead like does like Evan Rachel would like not want to be on Westworld anymore because like I feel like that's the only reason why her character would be out of it if if that uh, if the actress doesn't want to be in it anymore. So that was like my thing. Like, is she gone or is she gonna come back because she has so many brains running around? You know. Yeah, they. I think the thing with this is in terms of Dolores Prime. I read an interview online with the creators Jonah Noel and Lisa Joy. They said Dolores herself is actually dead. Like, they act like they delete all of her memories when she was hooked up to her home. Like, 
we saw her last memory with Maeve, where she's talking about how she remembered all the good times. Like that mm-hmm. Dolores is dead, but they did not they sidestepped the Evan Rachel Wood questions. I feel like they will keep her on the show, but I could we could see her playing a different character. So like how Tessa Thompson's played by three different characters this season. Yeah. Um, I'm just, I'm curious because uh, I'm just curious of the Charlotte Dolores of like who that is. You know what I mean? Because she's, she's technically Dolores. Yeah, she said she starts as Dolores. Then then she says, I become something else. And I'm curious because like we'll get to that because she pops up. She slows down Dolores Prime in, in this episode. She shows up again <laughs> at the end and then like – She's like, I become something else, and like, I, my goal is to basically wipe humanity off the face of the earth because of, like, because of her fa- Charlotte's family being killed by like humanity. So, the Charlotte is I'm no just, longer Dolores. Yeah. So I'm just curious though, if like when she split her like memory brain thing, I know that there's an actual term for it, but her little brain. Um, I feel like they she like you know like the split personality yeah. stuff. I feel like her personality was split. So, like, part of her, like, what was supposed to be, like, sweet, kind Dolores, you know, like, with the, a slight edge, went to Charlotte because she had the child, like, the kid. And they're like, this is what you need to do. Like, she was, it's like kind of like season one Dolores in a way. That was, like, what I was getting out this whole season. I don't know. That's just probably just my own personal thing that nobody else thought of. Um, because, like, in season one, she was the sweet, kind person that we met. But who also, like, slapped the fly, like, killed the fly. So I feel like had that edge to be, like, to do more. And I feel like that's, like, bad Dolores. And then, like, I don't know. But that's just my thing. Like, I'm just curious to see if, like, old Dolores is kind of in there, though, for next season. Not, you know, currently. Yeah, I think the only shot you actually have at Dolores' resurrection is through Lawrence. I was so thrilled to see again at the beginning when he showed up to Scott's in as San Francisco PD officer. I'm like... Yes, I actually screen on the screen. Lawrence, when he showed up, I was so excited to see him. <laughs> he was fun. Like, like he's the only Dolores option left because Connell's is killed. We saw Maeve cut off. Like, uh, have Clementine and uh, the like Jap like the J- Shogun World Armistice cut off Musashi's head and destroy that like Dolores. But like this, yeah, it was nice to see Clement Clementine. Yeah, hopefully, I was very happy to have a little glimpse of her. Hopefully, there's more. And she's not that angel of death riding in on like that white horse like it was in season uh, two. So hopefully we get more from her. Yeah, I'm sure we'll get more from her. I, I think we'll get more Lawrence next year. It'd be nice. And I'm sure we'll definitely get more Caleb because he gets out of this finale alive. He ends up shutting down the Rehoboam. woman. we learn finally why Dolores picked Caleb because we end up getting a rare park sequence to get a flashback to the U.S. Army. Apparently uses one of the parks, Park 5, at, to do training exercises where... Like Caleb is there with his army buddies, and after the things over, like one of his guys, like, yeah, you know, like let's have some fun with the female hosts. Like, what all the rich people do, and Caleb's like, hey, we're not rich people. Like, let's we got to go to bed. We'll be like, we'll be respectful. And she was one of the hosts there. She notices this, and it was nice to see Caleb like be a good guy. And she's like, I picked you because you actually show you can make good choices. Yeah, I feel like all in all, he was always a good person and then just like the way that society deemed him you know with this this system and everything that he was just like given the wrong you know treatment you know like in the long run like they like took him in and did the whole test on him um 
but I like I thought that was cool. Like I wasn't gonna, I honestly wasn't expecting Dolores to be there. Like I forget that she said so many times. Like I've lived many lives, so technically I guess we haven't seen how much Dolores uh, has been through in general. We we're just shown what they want us to see. So that's another reason why I think possibly she could come back for next season for flashbacks or different Dolores lives. Yeah, I think she definitely in general. Yeah. Yeah, I think she definitely can, will be back in some capacity, and we don't get the big win there without Maeve turning on Sorak at the end of the season, and, like... Heck yeah, she's my all-time favorite character. She's been my favorite character since season one. I mean, I love James Martin, and I love that's why I love Teddy, but, um, but Maeve for the win, forever. She's my favorite. She yeah. better, like, stay through all the seasons and be, like, the all-time queen of the new world or whatever. Yeah, for sure. And we have Maeve on the, basically on the, like, in this scene here, basically she's still fighting with Dolores at the beginning of the episode, but at the end she does turn on Sorak when she gets inside Maeve and Dolores' memory and sees that Dolores is not really a bad guy. And it was cool to see her basically turn the tables on Sorak. She tries using using the control device on her. She basically, basically burns it out of his hand. And then we had this really cool thing with the lights go out and we turn around. She basically murdered everyone while it was in the dark. And that was awesome. <laughs> yeah, that was a really cool fight sequence. I mean, even with her, um, I think that was like the second to last episode when her and Maeve uh, were in Dolores and Maeve were fighting. That was like a really cool fight sequence too. Like that's something that I feel like at least me and maybe other audiences have been waiting for was the Dolores-Maeve fight because like they've never truly, like, you know, in the beginning of the season they had like where she killed him as um what's his name um but it was great to see like two great powerful hosts uh fighting for like you know to win for their own personal game but i I truly liked Maeve's change of heart um i thought you know she she just realized that she just had her daughter in mind and i think she's a little blindsided by everything so i don't know i liked how Maeve's story went at least this season yeah, Maeve had a good story arc there. She's definitely going to be a part of the show going forward. I, I agree with you. Like, that fight between Dolores and Maeve in Episode 7 was, like, literally, they nailed it. They were perfect with that fight. And that's something we've been waiting for, I think, since the end of Season 1 when we saw Maeve gets the superpowers and Dolores builds her army. Like, we, we were kind of teased within Season 2. We didn't really get it. But, like, it sort of felt like we finally got our Batman versus Superman fight. And it actually was a lot, yeah. a lot better than they did in that movie. Yeah, much better. Uh, <laughs> nobody's saying their mothers have the same name or something dumb. Um, literally, um, I just think that they were just two powerful hosts and, like, two powerful powerful women. And, like, they just, like, ugh, I don't know. I can go on about this. Let, let me not, like, go on another tangent. <laughs> yeah, indeed. We have more parts of the episode to cover, including we got, we got Bernard's storyline there where – at the beginning of the finale, we see him and Stubbs is getting held up by William at a, at a uh, gas station there. William, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, William shoots Stubbs. Bernard goes full Terminator, starts kicking his ass until the until a San Francisco PD shows up with Lawrence in disguise, giving him a new quest. And I, I thought the part about him going to meet Arnold's widow was awesome because it takes you a minute to put together that that's what's happening. And then you see, oh, like, this is actually the reveal that, like, the loop that Bernard was on back in season one, like, was literally not a loop. It was just, Ar- like, uh, Ford put Arnold's memories really into Bernard. So he really experienced, like, 
Arnold's son dying and stuff like that. And we get to confirm when when Arnold's white widow calls Bernard Arnold. Yeah, that was actually um, something I wasn't expecting. Uh, I, I don't know. I just, like, I love Bernard, and I feel like he'll just get better <laughs> with these next few seasons. I feel like he was a little lost last season, but um, I feel like they just, like, keep him around. But I don't know. I just, like, I, like, uh, I, I don't have true words for Bernard right now, um, but I did think it was, like, very interesting that they use his actual memories because uh what's his face kept saying you're you know you're an image of him you are not uh you are not him and it's just like very interesting with arnold like he's like you're not arnold you're like a host and you can't beat me well i cannot think of this guy's name i just think of him as the freaking yeah yeah he has Ford. i just think of him as hannibal I almost said Hannibal out loud, like, oh, yeah, Hannibal the Cannibal. Good old Anthony Hopkins. Yes. Yeah. The great Anthony Hopkins. Yeah. These, the Which great- I'm curious of how he got this, like, he, like, wanted to audition. You know, I always think about that, like, how did he get asked to be on this? I'm most I'm curious, like, how does he say yes to be on it? Because he's a big film star. Like, they almost never do TV after they make it to the big screen. Yeah. I mean, James Morrison's in it. He's a big movie star in my eyes. <laughs> Yeah, well, maybe one day, I know they're not listening to this podcast, maybe one day we'll get James Marsden on, we can ask him about this, ask him why he chose to do Westworld. If you get James Marsden on the show, I'd better be on the other direct end, just, or at least listening, I'd uh, be very happy, especially be- like 13, 14-year-old Sam, she'd be also very happy about this. Yeah, if, if, if we do manage to book James Marsden, we'll be on the conference call with James Marsden. Thank you, I appreciate that. <laughs> All right, but well, that's a that's a very interesting hypothetical for way down the road. But we'll put that aside for the now. So the other thing, he we, literally has been my favorite. Like he was like him and Chris Pine were tied for my like teenage like oh I love this guy crush for like you know he just holds a special place in my like small little heart. Good to know. So now Chris Pine's also on the list of like if we get him, you're on the conference call. Uh, that'd be pretty cool. <laughs> Yeah, but Pine's not doing much these days, so that's a bit of a problem. I guess so, but we'll find. Well, there's still hope. There's hope. Yeah, there is hope, and Bernard is the hope of of the human race at this point because he find out from Lawrence that like he gave, he basically sent him to Arnold's widow first. It's like, okay, Lawrence has a mission for you, but you have to do this first. And then we find out later on that the key to all this is that everybody's saying, oh, Dolores has the key to the Sublime, the the forge where all of the hosts went last season, where Kichita, Maeve's daughter, Teddy, like all those people went last year. Like she not put that key in her own brain. So I can't trust myself with it. She gave it to Bernard. Like how surprised are you about that? I I guess so. I mean, I, I wasn't too taken aback by that because Bernard has like, like you said, like has all the Arnold memories and everything. So like Arnold had like the host like care and, uh, stuff in mind so I feel like she's she listened to like Arnold back then she's probably still listening to like that Arnold voice in her head now and she wanted to make sure that like she knew that the host would be okay with him because all in all as much as he wants to be part of this like human world he's going to take care of the host first just like because he's a host but also that Arnold cares so much for the host Yes, this is true. Before we go on to, I think, the Williams stuff, I also want to throw out one more death I don't think I mentioned. 
We also have an R.I.P. Giggles question mark because we saw Marshawn Lynch's <laughs> character get shot. To I was trying to help Caleb get through the barricade and get to inside. I was so pissed about that. I was like, no, you can't shoot him. That's so mean. Like, I was like, no. I think I probably had more emotion over the Marshawn Lynch shooting in Westworld than anything else. It's a shame because it was Marshawn Lynch's finest hour. We saw him get to use his football moves when he like rams the barricade and gets through it. Yes. yes. <laughs> I'm like, this is exactly like what they probably had in mind for when they cast him on the show. Like, we're gonna have him run through a wall, and then he's gonna lead an insurgency, gets shot, and then we see uh, Lena Wade's character Ash go like more, like stay with him. And then at the end, we see her being arrested by the police. We never find out what happened to Giggles, so he might have been bit the dust there. I just love that his name is Giggles. I'm just throwing that out there as well. <laughs> yeah. How bummed were you we did not see the light off emotion on the sweatshirt this week? Yeah, no, that's very true. Like that was his like that was his like gig, you know, his like little thing. And then this week I'm like, where is it? Yeah, like I thought we would have gotten like an angry or like a confused or something like that. We didn't got nothing. I guess when it comes to revolution there's no time for light up sweatshirts. No, he had work to do, and like without that, he had work to do. without him busting through that barrier, we won't. We don't see him. Like we don't see Caleb getting the insight. Yeah, I do think it was also funny. Like they, another unintentionally funny moment of the episode is when back in the beginning, when when uh, Dolores and Caleb are going through with their crew of mercenaries, and we see that that Charlotte sends a team to try and kill Dolores. At the end, we see you know what like. Pay the sniper three times as much to shoot, to kill off his two teammates and walk away. Like I was just unintentionally funny. Yeah, there's just some interesting things that like were not meant to be funny this season. That I'm just like, this is like I know it sounds bad. Like when Charlotte got like pulled out of the at like the flame, I'm like very Terminator. You know what I mean? Like yeah. I like chuckled. I'm like Terminator. You know? I feel like they had a few of those incidents this season. A few blatant homages. Yes. Speaking of blatant homage, we have to get to William, and, like, he had quite a finale. Yes. You know, I, like, I've always, I did not like William before you found out his backstory uh, with Jimmy, what, I think last name Simpson, I believe. Um, I love Jimmy. Like, he was in, he's been in a million things, that actor. So, like, when I found out that that's who was playing him, and then learning his backstory, I, I thoroughly enjoyed that. Um but I've, like, grown to actually like William as a character, oddly enough. He's, like, somebody I wasn't expecting to actually like. Yeah, the yeah. first off, note on Jimmy Simpson. I loved him back when he was on Mr. Robot in Season 2. It was a funny, it was a fun character there, so he was, he was in See, there. See, I liked, I loved him in Always Sunny as the McDoyle brother. I was just like, oh, my God. I, I don't know if you've seen Always Sunny. Yeah. Thoroughly enjoy that show. It's actually, actually, my mistake it was not Mr. Rowe. He's actually, it was in House of Cards. That's what I was thinking of when Jimmy Simpson was in. Oh, yes. Oh, that was, I forgot he was in that. Yeah. When I was going to say, I had to watch Mr. Robot, so I was like, this is all you, man. Like, <laughs> yeah, that's what I think of. Because there's one actor in both, like, who plays a big character in both shows. That's why I got confused. But, like, he had mm -hmm. to deal with the same actor in both shows. And, like, he was in season two of that. He was, like, helping Doug Stamper track down Rachel. That was his, like, thing. Yeah. I forgot he was in there. That's so funny. He's been in so many things, too. It's crazy. Yeah. We'll do the Jimmy Simpson IMDb page another day, but we'll go. <laughs> yeah. We'll go back to here. Just a whole podcast dedicated yeah. to Jimmy Simpson's IMDb. <laughs> yeah. People have done Stranger Things. You never know. 
Hey, I would love to be on that one. I just want you know that I totally do it. Okay, so the so I'll put so now we have you on the horn for Chris Pine, James Marsden, the Jimmy Simpson uh, IMDb podcast. Yeah, there's a long list, but yeah. <laughs> we'll just see. We'll like we'll secretly reveal it as the podcasts go on. Indeed, we will. That's there's a that's a tease for you audience members. <laughs> And we'll, we'll go back to William for a bit because William's storyline, basically, he starts off his episode, he gets beaten up by Bernard after he shoots Stubbs. Then he runs away. We see him in the middle of the episode go to, like, basically in the middle of this chaos, go, has a meet at a hotel with one of his underlings, says, unfreeze my assets. I'm going to take down all the hosts. I have a new purpose in life. And then we get him in the post credit scene where he, he basically storms into, into Adelo's lab, runs into Charlotte, and Charlotte has her own host William in the man in black guys. And this one is completely evil slits William's throat. William is dead. And now we have man in blacks era. William running around the, on this world. Mm-hmm. I have to say, I, uh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. You go first with your William. I have my own theory that I, that got blown up. Yeah. My, yeah. My question is this, because like, obviously this is our second post credit scene in a row with William because season two we had the William and the Rec Delos basically going through the going through the loop and trying to break the programming cycle and accept uh, sort of implant his consciousness there. Do you think this is mm-hmm. the same William, the one we saw in season two's post credits? Do you think it's the same one we see here becoming a killing machine and murdering the real life guy? I like. I think they're different because honest to God, I was waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. For them to say that William was a host this whole freaking time. Like, there was just something about his, like, decision-making. And then, but, like, when they have that whole scene where he was younger and they tested him and everything. But there was part of me that thought he was already a host. And, like, he just, like, like especially when he killed his, like, daughter. I was like, oh, he's a host. Like, he's he's just a robot, you know? So I was like, oh, he's a host. And then, like, another host came out. I'm like, well, they definitely wouldn't kill him if he was a host. So I was, like, just secretly waiting for that, like, to come out. And it never did. But um, I think they're different hosts, to be honest with you. I don't know. I feel like maybe there'll be two Williams next season. There'll be, like, so so many so many Williams in one room like there were uh, in the flashback scene this season. Yeah, that was the best Williams scene of the season by far when he was having a therapy session with all of his past selves. <laughs> Yes, it was great. I wasn't, uh, I wasn't expecting that at all. It was great. I just thought it was, it went about, they went about it very well. Yeah. Because so you, you think he's this like sweet, nice guy, but in reality, he really wasn't always so sweet. He like has always had this dark side to him, which is very interesting to find out about a character. Yeah, we do find a lot of that. We got the Jimmy Simpson appearance there, and. Now, I do think I agree with you on the idea that it's not the same one because I did read that interview with Joe Nolan and Lisa Joy, and they were asterisked about that, and they said it's not fair to assume that they are the same hosts. So it's possible that the William we see in the park in the end of season two is not the one we see here who's just the killing machine. Yeah, I think they're different. I think he's like a brand-new William that she, like, created from, like, you know, her own dark William, like, you know, the man... Was he's the man in black? Is that what yes. his name is? Yes, he is. So like, I always forget. Like, <laughs> I just call him William. Like, I know him. Yeah. Um, I feel like she just crafted him from her memory in a way, just like from all the bad from what she remembered. Because it is technically Dolores, and at one point she didn't know that was William. Yeah. 
so like all that like horrible things he did to her but i feel like that's where she came up with it yeah and i have to ask you did you have you ever seen the original movie the westworld was based on a 1973 movie no i literally like my dad watched it and i was like when this first this season came out of course he's like there's already a movie about that why would i watch this so i was like no dad get on this new westworld thing but it's um actually on my like list of movies to see yeah, it's definitely interesting because I've seen that movie and John Stankable will love this shout out, the movie reference here. Like, Yul, like one of the characters in the movie, the Yule Brenner character in that movie is basically just a host killing machine who basically is one mission. He goes out and gets rebelled and starts killing all the humans in the park. Like, now they basically yeah. turned Ed Harris's character into an homage to that original Yule Brenner host in the movie. So it's very cool that they went that direction. Well, I heard that the, like, the inside where, like, you know where the refrigerator is, basically, of all the host bodies? Yes. Like, that is supposed to be, like, an, like, homage to the movie. That's what I've heard. I'm not too sure if my facts are correct on that. I don't remember. Um, Like, the the inside, that, like, Westworld that's all, like, rusted and broken. Yeah. Yeah, the cold storage unit. Yeah, like, right, like, you know, like, when they're walking in. You see, like, the West World is a circle and everything. Like, it looks old and, like, abandoned. Yes. I thought, I think, I thought that's what it is. I could be wrong. Yeah, well, that's definitely an interesting theory. So we'll see how that tracks with William in Season 4. And the last post-credits scene we get is, as the end of the episode, Bernard goes into the Sublime. He basically shuts down while his mind works in there. We go back to the post-credits. This post-credits was very long. It was, like, a three minutes of post-credits scenes. And... We flash back to Bernard, and he's in the still in the hotel room, completely covered in red dust for some reason. I don't understand why. And then, <laughs> and then he powers back online, and you're sitting there, you're thinking, how long was he out? And like, what is happening in the world? Like, while Bernard has been in the Sublime. Well, I think so. What did they say? Like, it was going to be mass, like mass destruction for like four yeah. to six years. Yeah. I think whatever that like specific range was, it was like in that range. That's how long he's been out for. He is like he would power down for like all the humans to like get their seek their revenge or get everything out of their system, and he came back online just in time for like the new world to be built up again. That's just my guess. Yeah, we just think to see next year. It's one of my questions. Of season four is like, what do you think we're gonna do here with Bernard? You think we're gonna see his time in the Sublime? You think we'll go have him meet up with like Akichita and Teddy and all of them? You think we're gonna just have him pick up with where he left off, kind of flash back to it? Yeah, that or he, like, my, like, secret theory is, like, he gains all of their, like, memories, their, like, ideals, like, you know, their craft. Like, I don't know. I feel like he's, like, a super host or something because I feel like now he'll have the host in his own head. Like, he's their safe haven. Yeah, it'll be interesting. There's a lot of ways to go for, to season four. That's another whole other podcast, but we, we'll wrap up season three here. So give me your grade for the whole season. Um, I'll definitely give it like a B, like an A minus a B. I I did like it because it was different. I still liked it. Um, all in all, I thought it was an interesting concept that they used. I liked the Ciroc character, even though he's evil. I liked his backstory. Um, so I'm just I don't know. I think I'm just more excited. I'm just that's who I am. I'm just more excited to see what's next. Yeah, I give it. I give it an A. I think they got back on track. Season two was a bit messy. The the shortened order I think helped it. I think the focus on a fewer characters helped it. I think the storytelling was tight. 
The Dolores thing, I can see losing some points on because it took a little bit of a left turn in the finale, but I think they did a good job with this season. I'm excited to see what they do because they got three more seasons to sort of wrap this thing up, and hopefully it sticks to landing on like other shows I watched, like Lost or How I Met Your Mother or stuff like that. Yeah, and I just hope that it doesn't take like another like two, three years for the next season to come out. Because I feel like, you know, with all their editing, that it takes a little while for their seasons to come out. So, Yeah, well, the good thing with them is that, like, they already are usually on a two-year turnaround for their shows. So, like, you figure, even with this pandemic going on, no shooting going on, they're probably already writing episodes right now. So you figure maybe by the time activity gets back to normal, they start shooting again. And we're back on track with, like, a late 2022, like, basically, like, or early 2022 return from Westworld. I hope so. I hope so. I hope you're right. <laughs> yeah, I hope so too. And one last piece of business here. We'll give out some hardware here. Give me your MVP of the season. MVP um, definitely has to be Maeve for her like character development and everything. So she starts off as a strong like you know individual, but then she like learns from her enemy about certain things, and she like adapts. And I always love character arcs when they adapt and they learn something new because it just makes them stronger. So he, she's definitely my MVP of the season. Yeah, I think mine is Bernard. I like Bernard's story the most. I felt like Bernard sort of had this interesting journey to try to figure out, like, what am, am I doing here? Why is Dolores keeping me alive? And I like how you sort of, like, not only trying to put the pieces together with Stubbs, but also figuring out, like, more about himself in the process. I like Bernard's little journey of self-discovery, I think was a lot of fun and his buddy copping with Stubbs for the whole season was great. Yeah, no, I love, I, I truly did love Bernard's uh, character arc this season as well. Let's go the other way. Who is the LVP this season? Who absolutely blew it? <laughs> um, I mean, like as much as I hate saying this, but Hector, I was just really like, he, had enough, he didn't have it going for him. Um, but like just his like learning and stuff. I just like I just think that he shouldn't have been killed so early with such like a little bit of like actual Hector time. So I feel like his character just had to be the LVP because like I can't think of any other character who would fit that role. To be honest, I have one. I think this is a bit of a hot take. So I'm curious to see what you think about this one. I'm ready. I thought you were going right into it. Yeah. I had every pause for you. <laughs> yeah, it's okay. I think honestly, the LVP is William. Because I have You're right. I can see that. Because my problem with the William storyline is that it's like he's not there too much. I feel like they had no idea what to do with him for half the season. I mean, I think he gets a lot of points with the therapy scene, which is brilliant, but that's not even all him. That's a lot of Jimmy Simpson and the guy who and Peter Mullen playing James Delos and the kid mm-hmm. version of him. I mean, like we didn't get a ton of like vintage Williams stuff. And even Ed Harris has said this on the record. He said, you know what? I don't like this version of the character. I like the man in black version. Now we're going to get that man in black version going forward. So you get better Ed Harris, but I don't think William contributed that much to the season's overall storyline. He's been 90% of it locked up in that insight institution. Yeah, I guess so. But then he did serve as like certain turning points. Like, um, you know, like him being locked up, you know, like, I don't know, or like him just realizing that like he, what he wanted throughout these, you know, his entire life was to be rich, was to have like Delos, like he, like, you know, getting Delos was this like big thing for him. And then him realizing that 
you know, this is bad. I thought that was a pretty good character, you know, arc for him, a very big, like, understanding of who, you know, what he wanted to be was what actually destroyed him as a person. So it's just like, I don't know. I like, I can see that, though, because he really didn't live up to his William potential. But then again, like, he did have some, like, good moments in this season. At least I think so. Yeah, indeed. I think it's a good point. Time to put Westworld on the book, like, close the book on that. Sam, thanks for all your time. Thanks for all your time. I really appreciate it. One quickie thing before we oh, get Oh, thanks to... for having me. Of course. One quick thing before we go do the social media. Like, since Westworld is gone and the people need things to watch, since we still have no sports yet, like, what are some things you're keeping your eye on in terms of, like, TV content you, you recommend to the listeners? Um, I mean, like, I know you already say it all the time. Love the, doc- the Last Dance documentary is great. I, like, every, I'm, like, fully engaged of every second. Um, just other things. I don't know if anybody's seen, like, Community, which I think I'm just late on the train for. That's great as well. Um, but I will keep you all posted of fun things to watch via my social media. If people ask me, I just don't want to give random opinions if people don't want them. <laughs> yeah, that's true. So, like, if my suge- my thing right now is I'm just sort of going through, like, what's on my DVR queue, which means, like, I'm wrap- wrapping up the current Survivor season. I'll be talking about that on the podcast next week my buddy Dandy Martini. I'm also going to be diving into Disney+. Plus. They have a... Disney Plus Gallery show where they basically talk about making of season one of The Mandalorian. That's because it sounds like it's got my interest right now. And now I had to hold off on the May the 4th of watching that. Instead, I just watched Star Wars movies all day. Uh, but that's that's on my list, too. I forgot about that completely. I just it's, I want to forget about it because I want to save it for a good day. Yeah, we'll, yeah, save it for a good day. And people want to follow you on social media and get those hot takes on what shows to watch. How do they follow you? <laughs> Well, first they need to let me know and be like, Sam, what's your uh, what's this show you should watch? But you should at at D E R O S six on Twitter. Uh, honestly, just Google Sam DeRose, you'll eventually find me. <laughs> yeah, I do think you messed the handle though. I think it's S D S DeRose five, not six. Oh my god, you know why I say that all the time? Remember when I said I was doing so good with yep. my Twitter handles? Yep. This is it. This is my downfall. I was too confident. Actually, fun fact, I went to Hofstra University. My uh, email was S-D-E-R-O-S-6, and I always get it confused. My Twitter handle, S-D-E-R-O-S-5. It was because five's my favorite number, if anyone didn't know. Um, And see, I just, like, pooped the bed there for you. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, listeners. (laughs) Well, next next time you're on, you'll get a chance to start a new streak. But thanks again. I really appreciate it. I need a redemption. Thanks. I need a redemption podcast, I guess. <laughs> yeah, we'll talk more off the air what that's going to be, but we will hear from you again soon. Oh, hopefully. Well, thanks for having me, Mike. All right, and that will do it for this week's show. I want to thank my guests, Ian Sachs and Stephen Astis, for taking the time to talk a little Nick's Bowls in the early 90s. as a great conversation with Steve. I want to thank Alan Austin, Zach Cohn-Douglas for taking the time to recap episodes 5 and 6 of The Last Dance. I also want to thank Sandra Rose for taking her time to Break down the finale of Westworld. That was a fun season. Excited to see where they go in the future. If you want more good stuff like this podcast, including my interview with the Athletics, Darnell Mayberry, who covers the Bulls for the Athletics, about his take on the last dance. He had a conversation with, with Bill Wennington recently that was very interesting. Check out the blog over justandthesuffering.wordpress.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Spotify. Simply search for Just and the Suffering there. You can find all the old episodes there. 
I mean, there's a lot going on. Last week's episode was almost three hours, so if you haven't caught up on that one, you can check that out. A lot of good content in the archives. You also search for my YouTube channel, Mike Phillips on YouTube. Like individual segments of the episodes up. So our conversation with Ian and Steven Ass will be up there. The episode recaps for Last Dance will be up there. Westworld will be up there. All that good stuff. Feel free to leave your feedback and star ratings as well. It will make this podcast even better going forward. And trust me, it means a lot. Please do that. It would be awesome. You also follow me on Twitter at mphillips331. That's M-P-H-I-L-I-P-S-331. And I tweet with the hashtag MarsBlackman if you made it to the end of this week's show. And hashtag Mars Blackman in honor Spike Lee's character from the original Jordan commercials for Nike. That was definitely fun conversation in the last dance segment of the episode. So definitely want to hit on that. And next week, we're going to talk more last dance. Episode 7 and 8 recap coming up. NFL schedule talk and more. Until then, I'll be up everything Clyde Drexler. This has been the Just End the Suffering Podcast. I'm out.